Man, what a banging soundtrack. The original Sonic the Hedgehog OST. There it is. All right, on to the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to Marshall Media Montage, episode 89, part two. Uh, a little bit of uh, Roger Moore. Uh, I'm talking about For Your Eyes Only, View to Kill. Those are the only other two that I have on VHS that I watched, and uh, they're they're okay. They're interesting. I'm going to be talking about what games I am playing. Uh, I did seven subjective lists, had a little bit of a uh, technical difficulty there, and I picked up where I left off. I'm talking about Tales from the Crypt, uh, season one, episodes one and two. Solid stuff. And then uh, I believe it's eight Sega games that I was uh, playing with my uh, buddy, a junior guy uh, from work. But uh, as far as what I'm playing at home, I'm still playing uh, Sly 2. It's a lot of fun. Band of Thieves, 2004 platform game developed by Sucker Punch Productions on PS2. Uh, the first game being a Sly Cooper and the Thievius Raccoonus. Uh, they definitely take elements from that and develop it and make it a little better and worse, I guess. It just took me a minute to get used to. Uh, you also get to play as Bentley. You can use his crossbow. You can uh, put people to sleep and kill them that way, essentially. Uh, Bentley being the uh, brains behind everything. You know, you go in and hack computers. You hack uh, helicopters in order to uh, get a hold of uh, cars below. You hack a lot more like security systems. Murray being the uh, muscle, he just breaks things like doors if you need to get through uh, windows, breaks cars, you know, kills enemies a lot faster than everybody else does. And obviously Sly being the uh, Thievius, Raccoonus, uh, Spy, Stealth, Maneuver, Extraordinaire. Uh, it's a variety of changes, particularly in level design. The ultimate goal is to acquire clockwork parts because you thought you killed clockwork in the first one, but therefore uh, parts are spread out throughout the uh, world in the second game and uh, owned by these uh, bosses and so forth. You have to beat these bosses in order to get the parts back. Sly 2 features a health meter for characters such as Sly and Bentley and Murray, replacing the charm system of the first game. Yeah, uh, it was like a one-hit, one-kill kind of thing unless you had the uh, horseshoe from the first game. And if you got, I think it was like two horseshoes, you get like three hits. <clears throat> it also takes several uh, attacks to defeat guards in this one compared to the first one being a one-hit, one-kill. Other changes include missions where the player can control Bentley or Murray, as I've stated, who have their own unique skills and are able to do much more than in the previous game. However, Sly remains the main character despite these changes to character roles. Sly also compressed Triangle to do like an upward attack, uh, taking out people from uh, behind or the front, making it a lot easier and quicker to uh, dispose of them. You can also pickpocket uh, guards, which is pretty cool. Whether you find keys or you find golden coins or you find a golden piece of whatever, you can sell it for loot. And then when you go to the computer screen at the main hub, you can uh, sell your loot and use that particular, uh, I guess, skill trait, if you will, in order to purchase uh, more skill traits. It's pretty cool. However, Sly uh, remains. Uh, skills can be unlocked by opening safes in each of the world. Uh, that's also really cool as well, and just like how it was in the first game, as the previous game allowed, collecting clue bottles. But skills may also be acquired by collecting coins and purchasing them from the safe house via the thief net, as I've just stated. Um, R1 is to run rather than pressing triangle, which was a power-up you would get in the uh, first game. Um, it, it, it's relatively similar, and it still has that like cell-shaded kind of graphics. It's just... There's an overworld, and like I said, you go to the ThiefNet uh, cave hideout, I guess, if you will, and you can change between uh, Murray as well as uh, Bentley. It's it's cool. It's uh, double the length of its predecessor, lasting eight stages in five worlds instead of uh, less than the uh, first one. Each world has a claw gang member leading to a criminal organization of a family within it at, at its core that having a boss. Dimitri is a celebrity in the underworld of Paris, forging people, uh, excuse me, forging paintings. I took care of him. I am on the uh, second one with, uh, I think his name is like Raja, or, yeah, yeah, Rajan, uh, born in uh, India, has a committed to life of crime throughout his whole life, Rajan reminded me of, uh, was it Raja from uh, Aladdin, the uh, tiger, um, Jasmine's uh, tiger, 
it, it's cool. These are overworlds. And then, you know, you go back to your little hideout and then you figure out what you're going to do, which uh, mission you're going to do next. Uh, it's, it is fun. I, I'm enjoying it. It definitely, it, it was just, a, it was a difference in from the first one, as far as there being an overworld, different uh, game mechanics, different uh, plot development. Um, it's nice that you can save pretty much anywhere. You can save it and turn it off and it'll be right back where you were as soon as you turn it back on. Uh, it definitely upped the ante and its difficulty compared to the first one. There's a lot more missions. It's a little more stealth oriented compared to the first one. It's fun. The first one was almost like Crash Bandicoot with stealth elements. Now it's kind of like its own thing with uh, development from the first one being included, sprinkled here and there into the second one. But second one is almost like a standalone thing. And I'm having fun with it. I'm, I'm liking it a lot. And then, uh, of course, I uh, decided, I was like, you know what? I'm going to turn my Switch back on. I'm going to get back into it. I'm going to see if I can uh, beat the part that I was at on Sparks of Hope, the Mario and Rabbids, which I was, the uh, real-time strategy game. I beat it. I, I think I'm only maybe like 2 or 3% more into the game. I'm at, like, I think when I started it, I was at, like 46%. I'm probably at like 48 49% now. Uh, level 24. I think I have maybe one or two more worlds before I uh, beat the game. Uh, Sparks of Hope is a lot of fun for those of you uh, real-time strategy enthusiasts uh, out there. It's not necessarily too difficult. It's fun. There's so many different characters that you can use. Uh, they definitely in, you know, increase the difficulty per se compared to the first game. Uh, they also up the ante on uh, puzzles and it's it's not necessarily that difficult once you figure it out. Uh, it's, it's a fun game. Highly, highly recommended. Those those two games. Uh, so that's what I've been playing. I'm going to be talking for your hours only. A View to Kill. Obviously talked about Sly Cooper, uh, Sparks of Hope. Subjective lists, whether it be music, movies, video games, you will hear momentarily. I'm going to be talking Tales from the Crypt, Episodes 1 and 2 from Season 1, and the Sega games I am playing, and then close out this episode. Welcome back, everybody, to Episode 89. Here it is. Let's go. Well, doing uh, my Part 2 segment of... The other two Bond films that I have that I need to talk about that I have by uh, Roger Moore. First one being For Your Eyes Only, a 1981 spy film directed by John Glenn. His feature directorial debut, direct, or excuse me, produced by Albert R. Broccoli. Starring Roger Moore as MI6, James Bond, Carolyn, excuse me, not Carolyn, Carol Bouquet, Chame to, Chame? Came? Came to Paul, Lynn Holly Johnson, as well as Julian Glover. It is the 12th film within the James Bond franchise, produced by E.M. Productions. For is only written by Richard Maybaum, as well as Michael G. Wilson. Based on two uh, short stories from Ian Fleming, actually. For Yours only, as well as uh, Risico. Uh, after the science fiction-focused Moonraker, producers wanted to return to the style of the early blonde. blonde. Early blonde films. Wow. I'm, I think I'm just fucking tired, but you know what? We're going to roll with it. Early Bond films and works of 007 creator Fleming. Uh, following a grittier, more realistic approach and a narrative, a theme of a revenge and its consequences rather than the fantasy narrative of Moonraker. It released in the UK June 24th, 1981 and US two days later in June 26th, receiving a mixed and positive critical reception initially. The film's reputation has improved over time with reviewers praising the more serious tone in comparison to the previous entries within the series. Okay. Uh, production. We had gone as far as we could into space, according to John Glenn. We needed a change of some sort. Back to the grassroots of Bond. We wanted to make the new film much more of a thriller than a romp, without losing sight of what Bond was famous for, its humor. Okay, alright, yeah, sure. Alright, right on. Uh, Writing-wise, before the project was postponed in favor of Moonraker, uh, there's a storyline for Christopher Wood submitting a first draft in January of 1978. 
Risico and Four Yards Only. Another set piece from the novel of Love and Let Die, the keel hauling, which was unused in the film of the same name, also inherited into this plot as well. An initial treatment for the film was submitted by Ronald Hardy, an English novelist and screenwriter in 1979. Hardy's treatment included the involvement of the character named Julia Havelock, whose parents were assassinated by a man named Gonzalez. Pre-title sequence for Your Eyes Only has been described as either out of place and disappointing or roaringly enjoyable. I would probably give it enjoyable. I, I, I enjoyed it. The scene was shot to introduce a potential new Bond to audiences, thus linking the new actor to elements from previous Bond films. Okay. Richard Maybaum later said that we tried to return to the earlier films with Free Eyes only, but we didn't have Sean to make it real. Of course. Of course. You can't make a fucking Bond film without me. I see it. I get it. I was very disappointed with the way that the love story was handled. Um, the whole idea was that the great lover James Bond can't get to first base with this woman because she was so obsessed with avenging her parents' death. Nothing was ever done with it. It was the director that didn't feel that there was a love story there at all. And, yeah, I, I can get on board with that. I get it. There was a Citroen 2CV007, a yellow-looking kind of Woody Wagon, Volkswagen Beetle, I guess, if you will, more or less. Okay. Uh, filming and production began September 2nd, 1980 in the North Sea with three days shooting exterior scenes at St. George's. Although the first, or excuse me, the previous film had been shot almost entirely outside of the uh, UK, new conservative prime minister Margaret Thatcher's tax cuts allowed the shoot to return to Britain in the interiors at Pinewood Studios. Of course they were, 007. As well as the ship's explosion, which was done with a miniature and Pinewood's tank on the 007 stage. And rightly so, right? Uh, the scene was shot across 12 days with stunt driver Remy Julien, who would remain in the series up until Goldeneye driving uh, this particular vehicle, the Citroën. Four CVs were used with modifications for the strengths. All had more powerful flat four engines, and one received a special revolving plate on its roof so it could get turned upside down. That's also pretty damn fucking cool. Um, many of underwater scenes in this film, especially involving close-ups of Bond and Molina, were faked on dry sound stages. A combination of lighting effects, of course, slow motion photography, wind and bubbles adding to post-production, giving the illusion of actors being underwater. Actress Carol Bouquet reportedly had pre-existing health conditions preventing her from performing underwater stunt work. Aquatic scenes were done by the team led by Al Giddings, who had previously worked on the film The Deep and filmed either... Uh, Pinewood's tank on the 007 stage or an underwater set built in the Bahamas. Production designer Peter Lamont and his team developed two working props for the submarine, Neptune, as well as the mock-up for the fake bottom. Monastery of the Holy Trinity in Meteora served as a location for this particular area. Meteora shoots. That's, uh, okay. The pre credit sequence using the churchyard, the search the can't fucking speak in the judicial system. The judicial system. The Church of St. Giles, Stoke Poges, Poges, uh, Buckingham, there it is again, Buckinghamshire, fucking St. Giles, Stoke Poges, as a cemetery. A cemetery is probably how they would say it. Are you trying to say symmetry or cemetery? Yes, the cemetery. Whatever. Uh, while the helicopter scenes were filmed at the abandoned Beckton Gasworks in London. The Gasworks were also location for the sum of Stanley Kubrick's film, Full Metal Jacket, in 1987. Damn right it was. That's cool. The helicopter G backs the Augusta Bell 206B Jet Ranger 2 crashed in fog, actually, in uh, 1997, in November 14th, killing the wow pilot at Cocking, West Sussex, built on 28th December 1972 for a Galeford construction. Uh, the score for your eyes only was written by Bill Conti. John Barry influenced brass elements in this particular score, adding elements of dance and funk. Of course, they uh, have to change with the times. I get it. Title song written by Conti and Michael Leeson, sung by Sheena Easton. Nice. First title song to appear on screen in a Bond film. That's 
Also damn cool. The producers of the film hired Debbie Harry to sing Conti in Leeson's song, but she quit when producers refused to allow her band Blondie to write and perform an original song for the film. I get it, Blondie. I get it. I get it, Miss Debbie Harry. I do. You want your own uh, independent kind of uh, aspect to it. I get it. The film grossed $54.8 million in U.S. and Canada, equivalent to $101.5 million as of 2011 ticket prices. So it's definitely got to be more. Oh, here it is. $176 million as of uh, 2022. So they do a difference of 11 years. Sure, why not? Whatever. Promotional cinema poster for the film featuring a woman holding a crossbow, photographed from behind, leaving an outfit, uh, left bottom half of her buttocks exposed. Whoops. <laughs> Significant speculation as to the identity of the model before photographer Morgan Kane identified her as Joyce Bartle. Number of items of merchandising issued to coincide with the film, as well as a, a 007 original digital watch and a copy of Molina Citroen's 2CV by Corey Toys, a little uh, model edition of that. Marvel Comics also did a comic book adaptation. Interesting. Contemporary reviews. What do we got here? Uh, observer Philip French commented that not the first time the pre-cut sequence is the best thing about the film. French was dismissive of Moore's Bond, saying that Bond was impersonated by Moore and referred to Moore's advancing in years. Sure. Uh, okay. Uh, Jay Scott of The Globe and Mail included it on his list of years' worst films, calling it repellent and ambitiously bad. I would have to disagree. I mean, it's entertaining in its own right. I mean, so far from what I've been watching compared to the Sean Carney ones, they have progressively just been getting kind of like more eh, I'll give them that, but it's not, you know, a, I don't know, utterly atrocious piece of crap. I enjoy it in its own right. Anyway, uh, retrospective reviews. For Your Eyes Only has improved with the passing of time, though some reviews are still mixed. As of 2023, March, uh, the film holds a 69% fresh Rotten Tomatoes, ranked 11th among 12 or 11 among 24 Bond films. Ian Nathan of Empire gives the film only two of possible five stars, observing that the film still ranks as one of the most forgettable, forgettable Bond films on record. Uh, I can disagree with that. In 2006, IGN chose For Your Eyes Only as the sixth best Bond film, claiming it as a good old-fashioned espionage tale, a placement shared by Norman Weiner Wilner of MSN, who considered it the one more film that seemed to reach back to Sean Connery's heyday. Uh, yeah, I can get on board with that, absolutely. Totally. Um, yeah. Uh, what else we got here? Uh, Entertainment Weekly also ranked Lynn Holly Johnson as a uh, BB doll, uh, as the ninth on their list of the 10 worst Bond girls from the 21 films that had been released. That's also interesting. Okay. Uh, let me see what, uh, IMDb has to say about it. 1981 PG two hours and seven minutes. Uh, no one comes close to James Bond 007 with – that's the uh, tagline on the uh, poster art here with the crossbow and the woman's buttocks showing. Cool. 6.7, 105,000 uh, rating. James Bond is assigned to find a missing British vessel equipped with weapons, encryption device, and prevent it from falling into enemy hands. Directed by John Glenn, his first debut, as we uh, I stated. Written by Richard Maybaum, of course it is, and Ian Fleming. Starring Roger Moore, Carol Bouquet, and Topol. Roger Moore plays James Bond. Molina is Carol Bouquet. Tupel is Columbo. Who else do we have? Desmond Leland as Q. We do have Desmond Leland as Q. I'm glad. He happens to be in these all the damn time. It's awesome. All right. Moving on here. Yeah, trivially. I got to read you guys trivia because I'm curious too. In this film's conclusion, Bond uses his shoelaces to create a prosic knot, attaching himself to the climbing rope so he can ascend a mountain. This technique is indeed possible to do with shoelaces invented by Austrian mountaineer Karl Prusik and is common amongst climbers. The Prusik knot celebrated its 50th anniversary this year this movie was released, having first appeared in the Austrian mountaineering manual for rope ascending in 1931. 
the film having coming out in uh, 1981. That's that's really cool. A 23-year-old stuntman, Paolo Rigoni, Rigoni uh, died during the filming of the bobsled chase. This was due to a poorly designed track. Rigoni was not the only one to lose his life there, however. During an actual competition, another bobsledder was killed at the same exact spot. The track was later modified for a less severe turn. Yes, as it should be. Uh, lastly, the stunt of Bond falling off the cliff was dangerous since the sudden rope jerk at the bottom could be fatal. Derek, excuse me, all I'm burping is water in a turkey sandwich. Derek Meddings developed a system that would dampen the stop, but Rick Sylvester recalled that his nerves nearly got the better of him. From where we were, you could see the local cemetery. The cemetery. Are you saying symmetry or cemetery? The cemetery. The local cemetery. Cemetery gates. Yeah, fucking page here, right? Okay. And the box. To stop my fall looked like a casket. You don't need to be an English major to connect the dots. The stunt went off without a problem. All right, what else we got here? That is always, always interesting. I love reading trivia. It's just... I don't know, fascinating uh, information to me that really doesn't, it's not that important, but it's important to me. Release date, June 26, 1981, country of origin, UK, spoken English, Greek, Italian, and Spanish, also known as, uh, pff, I'm about to butcher this one, here we go, in Todliker Mission, apparently, Todlicher, Todliker, I'm not quite sure, filmed in the Monastery Meteor, Greece, as I've stated before, the St. Uh, Cyril's Hideout Monastery of the Holy Trinity, production company, Eon Productions, budget, 28 million, grossed uh, worldwide, 54.8. That's pretty cool. Okay, so yeah, they borderline doubled their money. It, yeah, it would have been 56. So they, they got pretty close. You know, so more power to them. Right on. All right, last Bond film that I own on VHS with Roger Moore. All right, 1985 spy film, A View to Kill. It is the 14th in the James Bond series produced by Eon Productions, the seventh and final appearance of Roger Moore as MI6 agent James Bond. It is based on the Ian Fleming's 1960s short story. The film has an entirely original screenplay. In A View to Kill, it is pitted against Max Zorin, played by Christopher Walken, who plans to destroy California's Silicon Valley. Produced by Albert Broccoli, Michael G. Wilson, and Richard Maybaum, as it should be, as it has been thus far. Uh, it was the third James Bond film to be directed by John Glenn and led... Uh, to the last feature to feature Lois Maxwell and Miss Moneypenny. <clears throat> that is always, always interesting stuff here. Production-wise, along with other stories of Ian Fleming's 1960 anthology, For Your Eyes Only, the original short uh, from A View to Kill was originally envisioned as an episode of an abandoned 1958 CBS uh, James Bond TV series. A View to Kill was produced uh, and co-authored the screenplay with Richard Maybaum. Broccoli, Albert R. Broccoli at the time, initially wanted to rehire George McDonald Frazier from Octopussy to co-write the screenplay, but he was unavailable. Originally, Maybaum's script included Zorin manipulating Haley's comet into crashing into Silicon Valley. Wilson insisted on a more realistic plot. At the end of Octopussy, the James Bond will return sequence listed the next film is From View to Kill. The name of the original short story, but later the title was changed. Company with a name similar to Zorin, a Zoran Corporation, discovered in the U.S. disclaimer, was added to the start of the filming that Zorin was not related to any real-life company. This is the first Bond film to have a disclaimer. The Living Daylights had a disclaimer about the use of the Red Cross. Interesting, as far as uh, like copyright uh, infringement and so forth. I, 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 I get that. Production of this film began June 23, 1984, in Iceland, where the second unit filmed the pre-title sequence in June 27, 1984. Several leftover canisters of petrol used during filming of Ridley Scott's Legend, causing Pinewood Studios' stage to burn to the ground. Wow. Stage was rebuilt and reopened in January of 85, a, uh, six months later. Renamed as Albert R. Broccoli's 007 stage, and rightly so. 
for filming a view to kill. A work had continued on other stages at Pinewood. Roger Moore rejoined the main unit there on August 1st, 1984. The crew then departed for shooting the horse racing scenes at the Royal Ascot Racecourse, the scene in which Bond and the Sutton uh, entered the mineshaft when the film is uh, in a waterlogged quarry near the stains, uh, the stains upon Thames uh, River and Amberley Chalk Pits Museum in West Sussex. Why? Just call the place, like I said before, like Franksville, I don't know, or welcome to, you know, Victorville, whatever. I, I, I don't understand the, welcome to Campbell's Chicken Noodle Soup Shire. Welcome. Yeah, what the fuck? I don't get it. Whatever. I'm not trying to be a dick. I just think it's funny. Uh, in Paris, it was planned that two stunt parachutists, B.J. Worth and Don Calvet, would undertake two jumps from a clearly visible platform that extended from the top edge of the Eiffel Tower. Uh, he was subsequently sacked by the production team for jeopardizing the continuation of filming within the city. <laughs> That's a trip. Airship Industries managed a major marketing coup with the inclusion of the Skyship 500 series blimp within the film. As all Bond films have included the most current technology, this included the lighter-than-air interest. The blimp seen in the climax was then on a promotional tour of the L.A. after its participation in the opening ceremony of the 84 Olympics summer. Uh, at that time, the welcome painted across the side of the gas bag was replaced by Zoran Industries for the film. And then obviously the whole uh, aspect of uh, copyright infringement with the Zoran uh, Corporation. I get it. Okay. All right. Despite filming going over schedule uh, by two weeks, the production was completed $5 million under budget and $30 million according to John Glenn. Filming completed January 16, 1985. Soundtrack composed by John Barry, published by EMI Capital. The theme song, of View to Kill, written by Barry and, and Duran Duran. Hell Yeah. Uh, performed by that particular band. Mayday Jumps is the only track that used the James Bond theme. Barry's composition on Her Majesty's Secret Service was modified for use in the songs Snow Job, He's Dangerous, and Golden Gate, uh, Fight of a View to Kill. Uh, Duran Duran was chosen to do the song after bassist John Taylor, a lifelong Bond fan, approached producer Broccoli, uh, Albert R. Broccoli, at a party and somewhat drunkenly asked him, uh, when are you going to give me some decent to do uh, one of your theme songs? That was me pretending to be a drunken uh, John Taylor. But it probably would have been better if I... Uh, <clears throat> let's do a little uh, drunken English accent here. Here we go. When are you going to get some decent to do one of the theme songs? Why do I sound Australian drunk? I'm not trying to do that. That was terrible. All right, moving on. Fuck, that was god-awful. Uh, during the opening sequence, a cover version of the 1965 Beach Boys song, California Girls, performed a tribute band, Gidea Park with Adrian Baker. Used during a chase in which Bond snowboards, it has been suggested this entire sequence helped initiate interest in snowboarding. Okay, that's cool. Especially in 85. Yeah, I mean, it was probably around, but not nearly as uh, prevalent as it is now. I mean, perhaps if they spawned that interest, that's really cool. This was the first Bond film receptively uh, with a premiere outside uh, the uh, UK, opening on uh, May 20. <clears throat> what is it? May 22nd, 1985, at San Francisco's Palace of Fine Arts. The British premiere was held on June 12th, 1985, at, Od at Odeon Leicester Square Cinema in London. Yes, quite. Rotten Tomatoes, the film approval rating of a 38% based on reviews from 61 critics. No, that's terrible. With <laughs> Which is the lowest rating for Eon-produced Bond films on the website. Metacritic, score of 40% based on reviews of 20 critics, indicating mixed or average reviews. Not surprised. Oh, Sean Connery has this to declare. <clears throat> Here we go. Bond should be played by an actor 35 to 33 years old. I'm too old. Roger's too old as well, too. In December 2000 interview, Roger Moore remarked, I don't know why I'm still reading it as Sean. How about I'll just keep going. I was only about 400 years too old for the part. Yep. Okay. That's fair. <laughs> oh, boy. Uh, let me see what uh, we got going on here as far as IMDb is concerned. Okay. 
If you to kill 1985 PG two hours and eleven minutes, has James Bond finally met his match? That is uh, the uh, tagline with the cover art being uh, it's like a pastel-y kind of cool drawing. Uh, him standing on the uh, Golden Gate Bridge with a helicopter in the background, and him holding holding his Walter P uh, P seven, the uh, weapon that he loves to use so much. Uh, has a six point three out of one hundred two thousand reviews. Uh, the uh, plot here is the recovery of a microchip off the body of a fellow agent leads James Bonds to a mad industrialist who plans to create a worldwide microchip monopoly by destroying California's Silicon Valley. Directed by John Glenn, the last one that he decided to do. Starring Roger Moore, Christopher Walken. Yeah, you know, I was in this before I was in Joe Dirt. And Tanya Roberts is in this with me as well. All right, let's see what else we got going on here. Uh, Tanya Roberts plays Stacey Sutton. Uh, Christopher Walken plays Max Zorin. Grace Jones as Mayday. That's such a cool name for a, a villain. Robert Brown as M, rightly so. Desmond Leland as Q, also rightly so. Lois Maxwell is in this. Jeffrey Keen. Uh, so, so cool. All right. What do you got here? What do we got here? Uh, another tagline here is adventures above and beyond all other bonds. Okay. Yeah. It's cool that they're like trying to one up them each one that they do. Like they keep trying to make them better, which rather than them just saying, this is the 15th film with Roger Moore or whatever, James Bond, like just plain and simple. Yeah. They're trying to up the ante each time. I like that. Okay. Trivially, Roger Moore turned 50, 57, during filming here, uh, making him the oldest actor to play Bond. Sean Connery was 52 when he did Never Say Never Again two years prior in 83. Although only appearing briefly, this movie is Dolph Lundgren's first on-screen appearance, playing General Goggles, Go- yeah, KGB bodyguard Venz. He landed the position because he was dating Grace Jones at the time of filming. It was conveniently on set when director John Glenn realized he quickly needed someone to fill in a simple uh, gun-wielding bodyguard. Okay, that's cool. He also could have been like the blonde Jaws or something, but we already had, you know, uh, Mr. Keel who played uh, Jaws. Uh, this film was Lois Maxwell's final appearance as Miss Moneypenny. Apparently after she was told that she would be retiring from the role, she thought she could become M as a promotion. Producer Albert R. Broccoli uh, believed that audiences wouldn't accept James Bond being given orders by a woman. Wow, what? Whatever, a different time. M became a woman when Judi Dench took on the role in GoldenEye 1995. Yeah, and she does a good job. I mean, that's where I first saw her... Uh, as M, anyway. At the time of this movie's release, uh, Sean Connery told the press, Bond should be played by an actor of 35, 33, I'm too old, Roger's too old. That's funny. So I, apparently it was a, a news uh, press release rather than just like within an interview. Um, when Stacy, lastly, uh, that's not the name, sorry. Lastly, when Stacy comes out of the shack in Silicon Ver- uh, Valley wearing a pair of coveralls, Bond comments, pity you couldn't find one that fits. Stacy gives him a dirty look. Roger Moore ad-libbed the line and Tanya Roberts' reaction was genuine. Ha! Roberts had refused to film the love scene, or excuse me, film the scene until the wardrobe department made her a pair of custom-fitted coveralls that would look flattering on her. Because she was so difficult to work with, director John Glenn decided to leave it in. Ha! Oh, it's funny because she was kind of, I guess, a pain in the ass. Okay, all right, well, whatever. It is what it is. It works. Uh, released May 24th, 1985. Countries of origin, UK and the US. Languages spoken, English and French. Also known as A-V-T-A-K, Avtac. Aflac. The film's also known as Aflac. Sure. Filmed in Chateau de Chantilly, Chantilly, Oise, France. James Bond stays at Zorin's estate there. Production companies, Eon, box office. Uh, I'm going to guess maybe 35 and it grossed maybe 50. Box office, excuse me, budget, 30 mil, grossed 50. Oh, I was close. Okay. Hey, made 20 mil. Why not? 50.3. There you have it. That is my part two of Roger Moore's 007. Moving on to the next thing. 
All right, everybody, as soon as I logged on to MSN to be talking about some other things, uh, as is tradition now with my show, evidently MSN decides to throw at me a couple, uh, I guess, surveys and uh, <clears throat> I guess subjective as well as objective lists that I would like to verify what they have as well as give you my take on some of these things, whether it's worth watching, playing, eating, drinking, whatever the hell it is. Uh, and the first one, well, it's going to be video game related. I have top 10 Rarest PS2 games of all time and how much they are worth. So PS2 games and worth. Some of them I either have heard of or some of them I haven't. So let's uh, let's take a look here and see what we got going on. Well, let's. Uh, so they put Bully at the what? The wait, Bullies? Wait, I have Bully for PS2 and I paid maybe. I guess unless it's gone up in price. I mean, yeah, I have the. Uh, it comes with the, like a, what is it? It's a poster. That's what I love about old games too. Like there's posters inside, or, you know, the uh, manual. Sometimes there's stickers. Sometimes there's uh, like a registration card, especially with like Sega Saturn games. But uh, so Bully, okay. I guess I'll go by uh, games as well as maybe perhaps their uh, price. It's saying, I'm going to go CIB. Uh, it ha it's $207. I, I have that one. Um, yeah, it's a Rockstar game. It's known for a lot more than just Grand Theft, obviously Rockstar being known for Grand Theft Auto as well as Red Dead Redemption. <sighs> the uh, studio put out new IPs and tried out new ideas more often than it does now back then. Yeah, I mean, they tried with a bunch of different things, but uh, they know what sticks now, which is the Red Dead games and Grand Theft Auto for the most part. But uh, it's one of the most controversial games of all times in several countries. And uh, I'm glad that it's on this list. That's cool. I didn't realize it was considered like rare like that. Yeah, I mean, no pun it. Well, that's not the publisher. Rare not being the publisher. Rockstar is the publisher. Excuse me. Uh, let's take a look at the next game. Futurama. Yeah, this one's notoriously uh, pretty fun. It's kind of like what they've done with the, uh, I guess, like Simpsons games per se. They just made them just goofy and a lot of fun because I, I loved the uh, Simpsons game on PS3. Of course, I loved Hit and Run and uh, Road Rage was like their version of a uh, crazy taxi. But yeah, Hit and Run was like a Grand Theft Auto and uh, the um, one on PS3 that I have is uh, it's its own kind of thing. It's a lot of fun. But yeah, Futurama, that one I will put on this list. Sure. I guess I'll, I'll besides price, I will rank them or rank them in my own little um, I guess category of like, oh, ones that I want as well as I guess maybe perhaps what I'm willing to pay. I will definitely not be paying $247 uh, CIB for Futurama, I'll tell you that. Plus shipping and handling, if, you know, because finding that one in stores is going to be kind of hard or going to a game convention or whatever. Uh, obscure, I don't, here. This is their list, and I will put, I'll put my list of games that I know of. I want to say I've heard of this one, but I don't really know enough about it in order to put it on a list. But if anybody's interested, uh, CIB goes for 267 So clearly we are... Uh, Ascending in price, I guess, if you will, or increasing. Uh, dot hack games, yeah, they've been known to be expensive since they uh, came out in two thousand two. Uh, yeah, they they've always been kind of expensive. I've seen the series. Uh, I'm assuming it's like a hack and slash, kind of like maybe like the Naruto games per se. Uh, I, I've always been told you kind of have to play the game in order to understand the anime, and I'm like, well, then what the hell? I'm like, then again, there's so many different animes as well as there's so many different video games within the series. Besides just like PS2, but anyway, I, I won't put it on this list either. Uh, Silent Hill, of course. Uh, once again, I mean, I can't put it on my list because I have never played any of these games. I mean, I've played horror games that are relatively related. I mean, I've seen the movie, and we all know that they're kind of rather uh, obscure and expensive now. 
Uh, back in the PS2 ga- uh, days, the uh, game was uh, considered booming at the time. Silent Hill Shattered Memories is offered a new take on old events in relation to uh, the first game on PS1. It's basically a rehash of that. The only problem was the PS2 version of the game was ported from the original Wii version, which also, I believe, is rather expensive as well. Not nearly as expensive as this one, though. And most reviews give it worse marks for bad optimization and other uh, ports that the issues were uh, given. The Wii version of this game isn't necessarily too pricey, as I've stated. The PS2 version will set fans uh, back a few hundred dollars. CIB for Silent Hill, if anybody's interested, $315. That's a lot. Haunting Ground, $327 CIB. I I don't think I've ever seen this one before. Uh, Xenosaga, of course... Well, I guess that's because it's a it's a different particular cover. The lenticular cover, Xenosaga, is a $350 CIB. Uh, normal, it's around $100 cheaper, $226. Uh, I can't put it on this list either. Um, Blood Will Tell, never heard of that one. Uh, Blood Will Tell is a game based on the Dororo uh, manga. Dororo is, yeah, it's also an anime as well. I want to say I've watched a little bit of it. It was pretty interesting. Um, released in 2004, Blood Will Tell, the most expensive PS2 game, thanks in large part to its cult appeal. Uh, big surprise. If they can go, uh, sometimes even new, it's stating here that it can go up to 535 but uh, according to eBay, it can also go up to $600. Big surprise, you know. Rule of Rose, uh, I don't know anything necessarily about this game other than it's one of those controversial, uh, without the filter of guilt or sin, released in Europe as far as being one of those nor- notoriously expensive PS2 games. CIB, $700. I don't know anything about it. Uh, yeah, I mean, other than um, what else we got here? Uh, Garner Controversy Upon its release. It's another survival horror title, of course, this time with a bit of psychological twist and a fairy tale like flavor. Controversy around the game stemmed from its exaggerated claims against it, which later proved to be false. If still wasn't received well because of bad reviews and an embattled European release, the game became incredibly rare. And it's almost like every PS2 find you ever see on youtube or whatever everybody's always like oh my god it's one of the most expensive ones and it's it's something you have to play you know kind of like how eternal darkness uh eternal darkness sanity's requiem on a gamecube kind of is uh kuon that's another one that's i don't know anything about it never played it never heard of it until i started you know following up on uh i guess rarities and oddities of uh games that you need to have within your collection that are expensive and a uh, kuon is always on that list uh, it's such a rare game that just its loose disc is worth more worth more than most other valuable PS2 games. New price. Uh, it's more of a collector's item than ever. CIB seven hundred sixty five dollars. Uh, dollars. Uh, when, yeah, a reminder perhaps of a time when software could do no wrong. Uh, yeah, that's that's their number one. Okay, I don't know why they put Time Crisis three on here and they don't even talk about it. All right, let me. All I have is Bully and Futurama. Uh, I'm glad I own Bully, so pff, I had no idea it was worth that much now. I mean, maybe the, I have, like, a version that isn't worth that much. I mean, it was in pretty good condition when I bought it, too, you know, off OfferUp a couple of years ago, 10 bucks. I know that they remade it on uh, 360. I just haven't gotten around to my PS2 version. I think, did I pull it out? I mean, because I, I hooked up my PS2 to my CRT. I might have to pull that one out and play it. Uh, you know what? Actually, I might have it in my drawer right here. Let me... Nope, I don't have it in my drawer, or at least not on me. It's in a box. I know exactly where that box is, so I might have to pull that one out and take a look if it's that collector's edition. If so, I mean, I'm sitting on 200 bucks. Not that I'm going to sell it. I want to play it, but anyway. All right, next list. What do I have here? 
best retro games of all time. And of course, I have to start from the uh, back. Uh, number, let me scroll. Hang on a second here, guys. Uh, why'd they go? Okay, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. What do we got here? All right, starting from the back. Ooh, they put, okay. So best retro games of all time. I like stuff like this, especially because it's obviously very, very subjective. It's very objective as well. I mean, because it all depends on whether you like 3D, 2D, uh, what type of gameplay you like. I mean, it just, and I like most types of games. I think you guys already know, I think the ones that I don't really necessarily care for are typically just fighting games, only because I'm not very good at them. I mean, it's it, that's like saying, like, why play golf if you're not any good at it? I don't know. I, mean, I guess you can play to get better, sure, but I don't know. Golf's just not my thing. Uh, if I want to play like an old <laughs> type sport, I guess I'll play tennis personally. I love tennis, but, uh, okay. Best retro games. Number 25, they have here symphony of the night. So symphony of night, Castlevania, of course it has to be on this list. I've played other games that are similar to this. I mean, I've played Rondo of blood on a PC engine CD-ROM. I've played, uh, well, I guess that's, the, that's the precursor to this game. It's not necessarily the Metroidvania aspect because this game is basically what started that Metroidvania aspect, hence Castlevania and uh, Metroidvania. Uh, the whole going back and, you know, oh, you found a key here. You got to go open up this door and uh, leveling up system and so forth, magic and, you know, extra abilities and all that. Um, I've played Aria of Sorrow. I've played Circle of the Moon. Um, I've played a lot of similar ones that are in later catalogs, like the GBA titles, as well as the Nintendo DS titles. Let me get a sip of water real quick. Okay. <clears throat> so moving on, we have Castlevania Symphony of the Night as number 25. Let's see what else we got here. Nope, nope, nope. Okay, number... 24, Outrun 2006, Coast to Coast. I believe I, no, no, I don't have Outrun. That's also one of those, I want to say, kind of borderline expensive ones now, if I'm not mistaken. I want to say this was a, yeah. Well, it actually, there were more, I thought it was just original Xbox. So this is released on PSP as well. Uh, PC, of course, because a lot of games did come out on PC back then as well. Uh, and it's also on PS2. I, I have a feeling Xbox probably handled these, uh, Sega arcade looking graphics a lot better in my perspective, but I will put Outrun 2006 on here. Of course, I remember the one in an arcade. I remember playing the one on a like Sega Master System as well as a Genesis and so forth, uh, as well as the arcade. So Outrun, sure, I will put that on here. Shenmue, ahead of its time. I have it. I even have the sequel, uh, Shenmue 2, on the original Xbox. Uh, I've only dedicated maybe a couple hours to it. You know, I looked at it in my box, and it's one of those. It's. It's an interesting kind of game. It, it tracks like, you know, the hours, the day, the time, everything, and uh, as well as uh, kind of like how the original Xbox can do stuff like that. And uh, this was revolutionary at the time. Even like how like Seaman did kind of the same thing. Like, oh, we haven't seen you in like you know three years since the last time you played this level or whatever. But uh, let me give you a little synopsis for those of you who don't really know about Shenmue. After continually steering Sega through the tumultuous seas of its arcade history, Yu Suzuki zeroed in on the Dreamcast to release, uh, excuse me, realize his ambition for what would be its time at least game of stunning realism that felt a world away from many arcade-themed games that had dominated Sega's console. Its unique, persistent world felt so extraordinary that a legion of fans fell in love with it, leading to the resurrection of the franchise two decades later. There, like, there is also a Shenmue 3 I've seen as well. But uh, yeah, Shenmue deserves to be on this list. It's two discs. I, I even have the music disc after the fact, especially for the Dreamcast, even, you know, being released in 1999. It, 
it was ahead of its time with its gameplay elements as well as graphics and uh, its open world thematics, uh, especially at the time, you know, being what, 24 years old now, that game. Uh, all right. Uh, 22 Elite. I have never heard of that one. It looks like it's a 1984 arcade game um, coming from coded by David Braben and Ian Bell, inspired by uh, from Battlestar Galactica. And I was never a big Battlestar Galactica fan. Apparently, it looks like it's on maybe Magnavox Odyssey or something. Uh, I, I will give that one a pass. Sorry. Sorry, not sorry. How about that? Secret of Monkey Island. Uh, these things, they, they get a lot of uh, hype about these games, the point-and-click adventure games. Uh, I'm just not a big point-and-click adventure, nor am I really a big PC gamer. Like, I was maybe not even a big PC gamer back in the day anyway. I just played some here and there. I haven't played a PC game in a long, long time, but I guess for those of you uh, PC fans, enthusiasts out there who really enjoy these old point-and-click games, uh, I mentioned it for you. It's just not my cup of tea, that's all. R-Type, yeah, R-Type's a pretty fun shooter. Uh, I really like it on, I think I started playing it on Super Nintendo, but I know it originally came out, obviously, arcade, and then it was ported to the TurboGrafx-16 uh, as well as PC Engine ROM. Um, so we got R-Type. Yeah, it's a classic uh, side-scrolling shoot-em-up. Uh, it's old as, it's made by IREM in 1987. IREM also did uh, shoot. Rocky Rodent on Super Nintendo, which was like their answer to like Sonic the Hedgehog. It's really fast. You could use your hair and all. I fuck. I love Rocky Rodent. I was able to beat it finally. Oh man, it was a difficult game, but it was fun. Uh, Irem's shooter R Type has everything you want from a genre, including satisfying power ups, challenging attack waves, and some extrude. I can't fucking speak English. Truly exceptional bosses, which are difficult to take down as they are freakishly weird to look at. And that is very true. They have very strange-looking bosses. Its gigantic mothership on Stage 3 has been uh, copied by countless other games. It is a true timeless classic and deserves to be on my list. All right. Uh, Grand Theft Auto. But I can see the hype behind these games. It's just it's not my thing. I, I just never really got into Grand Theft Auto. Sorry, guys. Sorry. I'm moving on. Streets of Rage 2. Yeah. Yeah. I will talk about Streets of Rage uh, 1 here in a little bit, but uh, Streets of Rage 2, yeah, I had a lot of fun with uh, the first one a little while ago. I don't think I I don't think I beat the second one, or I might have gotten pretty close. The way that Streets of Rage 2 ending is set up is rather similar to how the first one is uh, set up. It looks like they slightly increased the graphics. It looks like they uh, probably increased the... Um, I guess a strategy as far as uh, jumping over characters, you can, you know, grapple them and throw them, you know, at other characters, you pick up weapons, you could pick up uh, items to increase your health, items to increase your uh, life. Um, <clears throat> if you're including contemporary brawlers, here's Streets of Rage 4, obviously could well cinch the crown, but we're focusing on the good old days of uh, Sega here. Everything about Streets of Rage 2, it's bigger and better than its prequel. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's definitely probably the best of the original trilogy, but it is still a really fun uh, game, the first one. But anyway, I'm talking about the second one on this uh, list here. Enhanced visuals, uh, a great, great soundtrack, especially for Sega's uh, chiptunes, what they were able to accomplish. Two new fighters, uh, Skate and Max, were introduced besides just uh, Blaze and uh, what's the other fucking guy's name? Uh, Axel, excuse me. I should have known that. Um, and joined regular Blaze and Axel as they kicked and punched their way through the grimy streets in their pursuit of Mr. X. So it's the same villain from the first one. I believe the first one was like eight stages, if I'm not mistaken, but its sequel came out in 1992 on Mega Drive and deserves to be on my list. I'm glad I'm talking about it. Yeah, Streets of Rage is a great, great game. I'm glad it made it. Uh, it's number 18 out of 25. I, I would probably either put it at maybe 15 or 10 at least, but that's just me. It's a lot of fun. Half-Life 2. Uh, I played it. 
did I play this? I think I have the the Valve like orange box or whatever on Xbox 360, and I think it's Half Life Two that's on there. But originally it came out on PC in 2004. Uh, it's the template for an atmospheric story. First live, excuse me, guys, I'm sorry, FPS, but it's magnificent sequel pushed the genre's boundaries, uh, boundaries even further, fueled by some astonishing set pieces. And then, of course, there's Half-Life 2's Gravity Gun, a weapon not only designed to showcase the sheer power of the PC at the time, also clever creativity of the game's developers. It's another classic example of a sequel bettering its acclaimed predecessor in every possible way. Uh, yeah, I'll put Half-Life on here, because I've played enough of it to be like, oh, dude, this is really cool, like, I don't think I beat it. Uh, I, I definitely want to go back and play it. But uh, from what I remember, yeah, it's a lot of fun. Number 17, Half-Life 2. I would probably put Streets of Rage 2 over Half-Life 2, personally. Number 16, Goldeneye. I see its importance. I loved it then. I don't think I could probably go back to it now, at least not multiplayer. But if I played a uh, single campaign, yeah, I probably could, whether it be on N64, uh, you know, 1997, or obviously now, or even a Switch, would it uh, just got remastered and so forth. Uh, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it's 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 a fun game. Or at least I had a good time with it. I don't necessarily know if it holds up. I haven't played it in a long time, but uh, I had fun with it then. Yeah, I, I played a lot of it. Uh, Sonic the Hedgehog. I'm glad Sonic's above uh, Goldeneye. Yeah, it's a Sonic classic Hedgehog. The first one, 1991, I believe. Yep, 1991. Released on Sega, of course. Sonic. Uh, also on Mega Drive as well, the uh, Japanese and European edition designed to compete against the platforming supremacy at the time of nintendo's super mario series of course yuji naka's game was majorly focused on speed over exploration still offered plenty of opportunity to explore its colorful zones that sonic sped through pop and tunes uh the fact that you can collect rings and essentially if you as long as you held on to one ring if you got hurt and kept collecting your uh, one ring you couldn't die it was really really cool ahead of its time very very fast for the time as well uh, I, I would probably put Sonic 2 and then 3 probably over the original because you could at least, uh, what, crouch down, you know, tap B a couple times and let go and you were you were moving, you were trucking. But uh, the original one, of course, set the standard. I've beaten 1, I've beaten 2, haven't beaten 3 yet. I have 3 Elite. What's cool about 3 too is then you can also uh, save your game in it too. Uh, let's see what else we got here. FF7. Of course, of course I could see FF7 being on this list. I had a good time with it, and I can see its importance. I'm not hating it. I'm not. It just, out of the ones that I've played, granted, I've only played, like I've said before, Adventure, 4, and 7. I would probably go 4, Adventure, and then 7, personally. Uh, Adventure was a lot of fun. It's definitely dated, but it, it's still pretty fun. Uh, 4, I just, I don't know. I just enjoyed that one a lot more. I haven't beaten it yet. I'm about maybe 28, 30 hours in. I'll have to go back. That, or I might even just have to start over, because I don't even... I think I got a grind. I'm like on the moon. Anyway, but yeah, Final Fantasy VII, of course, uh, PS1, 1997. Groundbreaking genre that brought over JRPGs to the States forever and just changed essentially the game within JRPGs forever. Uh, Squaresoft's uh, development, of course. And then obviously the remake on uh, what PS4, PS5, and all that crap. Okay, Legend of Zelda, Link to the Past. Yes, I would definitely put Link to the Past over FF7 any day, personally. That's just me. Uh, that's probably still my favorite Zelda. I could see where it's a little rough around the edges with some people who try and go back having never played it. But uh, I, I love this game. Number 13 is Legend of Zelda Link to the Past on Super Nintendo. What hasn't been said about this game, released 1991. Retains a sense of adventure from uh, Shigeru Miyamoto's first exploration with the NES game. It's basically the original NES game, but just on steroids. It just it handles a lot better. You can actually visually uh, see where you're supposed to um, you know, put bombs on the wall. I mean, the fact that there's... 
like a, almost like open exploration, you know, and the screens change, you can run, you can use the bow, you can use a light, you can use, you know, a wand, you can, like, there's so much involved with Link to the Past, it's so much fun. Okay, what else we got here? Metal Gear Solid. I will put it on this list. Uh, it's, I've only played the fifth one, guys. I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Austin. Believe me. I, I, I look at my little PS1 classic and I'm like, I got to turn it on. I got to turn. I just, I, I'm trying to play my PS2. I'm trying to beat these games currently before I uh, turn on my uh, PS1 classic to play uh, fucking Metal Gear Solid. But I will put it on there, Metal Gear Solid. All right. Metal Gear Solid. It's number 12, Overlink to the Past. I would... I can't say anything against Metal Gear Solid. I've only played the uh, Phantom Pain, the fifth one. I mean, if it were Phantom Pain over Link to the Past, hell no. That's the only one that I've really... Well, I have played the one on NES, and I've even played the sequel on NES as well, but I, I, I'm always told play one and then three, and then if you want, play two and four. Uh, I always hear one and three are the best. Released 1998 on PlayStation. Uh, Hideo Kojima's masterpiece, apparently. Uh, okay, let's move on. It's number 11. Shadow of the Colossus. I loved that game. That one's definitely going on my list. Uh, I fucking love this game. It was a lot of fun. Um, released on PS2 in 2005. You can almost hear your PS2 strain and creak as it struggles to run Fumuto Ueda's fiercely ambitious game. I have the uh, remake on uh, PS3 with ICO or ICO, however you want to pronounce it. It's a, a dual disc. Or no, excuse me. I think it's just one disc and it has both games on there. Uh, it's nothing more than a boss rush with your protagonist, Wander, searching the bleakly beautiful forbidden land in the hope of resurrecting a young maiden called Mono. Aided by her, his trusty horse, Argo, Wander must solve light puzzles and simply platforming to reach the resting places of these powerful beasts The hold the key to unlocking Mono's return. Uh, it's 16 levels. Uh, I mean, I, you can't even really call it levels. It's open world. You find these 16 colossi and you basically just take them down. There's no minions. There's no uh, keys to whatever. You literally just travel the world and you have to find these bosses and you just take them down. That's it. So I can see why they consider it a boss rush. Sure. Why not? It, it's definitely a masterpiece and something to behold. Uh, Super Mario Kart. I'll put it on this list. I, I would probably do... 64 as well as double dash and even mario kart 8 over the original super nintendo but i get it we're talking uh you know best retro games so snes i can't they should have put i think the 64 version but whatever uh super mario kart released 1992 a uh it, it was originally planned apparently here is a, a two-player sequel to the f-zero game that came out prior which was borderline a, a launch release if i'm not mistaken they uh, rethought several months in and put Mario and his mates in the game instead, helping to popularize a whole new subgenre, kart racing, within the process. And they did, uh, with its deliciously hellish battle mode and time trials that had us missing all manner of important appointments. Nintendo created such a successful formula that has been ripped off ever since. Very, very true. It, it's been around for the last, what, 31 years? You know, they've been making these uh, Super Mario Kart games, so that's pretty cool. Halo. Combat Evolved. Of course, yep, Halo is at number nine. Halo, Combat Evolved, number one. Uh, yeah, I'm surprised they didn't put two on here. But uh, yeah, I, I could see, yeah, Halo is very, very important. It. I would say, how about we'll say like GoldenEye set the foundation for the house and then Halo built the house as far as uh, first-person shooters are concerned. They, they revolutionized it. They capitalized it with uh, Bungie backing them up back in 2001, man. Ah, sorry, I had to get a drink of water there. Ah, man, such such a good time. Uh, the the HUD, the heads-up display, the weapons, 
the grenades, the level progression. It just, it was a lot of fun. And the whole idea behind, you know, legendary and hero you can play or as are, it was just, it was great. I loved Halo. I still do. Street Fighter, I can, yeah. I, it's like Street Fighter and Mortal Kombat are probably my two favorite fighting games. Even though I'm really not the biggest fighting game enthusiast. I said that 25 minutes ago now at the beginning of this episode. But, uh, <laughs> or this little segment here. Um, yeah, Street Fighter 2 is probably, yeah, yeah, I'm putting it on this list. Because I, I had a lot of fun with it. I've played it on Super Nintendo. I've played it on Sega. I've played it in arcade. I... Street Fighter 2 is fantastic. It came out in the arcade in 1991 uh, on Capcom, if anyone was interested in regards to that information. Mario 64. I, I think I'm more of a Mario Galaxy fan, personally. I mean, I even like Mario Sunshine or Super Mario World or even Mario Brothers 3, um, Mario 2 over Mario 64. But I can see its importance. It just... It totally just set the tone for... 3D platforming ever since 1996 when it came out. It just the exploration, filling the world with all manner of engaging missions, from racing turtles to navigating a deadly toxic maze to fighting Bowser to uh, catching a rabbit to you know running away from the ghosts and then you know swimming down and you know finding the Loch Ness and all like there was just so much involved in secret worlds. I, I get its importance. It's just not my favorite within the uh, catalog of Mario games, but I will put it on this list because. Rightly so, it deserves to probably be on this list. Tomb Raider, the original one. Oh, man, it's rough around the edges. Uh, I played it on PC before I even had a PlayStation, before I even knew what a fucking Sega Saturn was. came out in 1996. The first one, though, I'm going to have to pass because I, I think I played more of uh, like Chronicles of Revelation on my Dreamcast as well as... It's essentially the same game, but I mean, dude, I think even as a kid when I played it when I was like like eight years old or eight, nine years old. And uh, it just, even then, like using the WASD on the keypad, you know, on the keyboard and my mouse and trying to shit. It was revolutionary, sure. But God damn, the controls were just so fucking just wonky then. I'm not putting it on this list just because of the fucking controls. Sorry. Resident Evil 4. Yes, yes, yes. I love that game. You guys already know. I loved the GameCube version. Two discs. It originally came out on the GameCube in 2005 by Capcom. Love that game. Tetris. Yes, very, very best retro game of all time. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, it needs to be on this list. Absolutely. Uh, what else we got here? Doom. Yeah, I I played it on Super Nintendo. I think I got maybe about halfway through it or so, and I think I died. I loved the music. I loved the uh, idea that there was really no crosshair. You just kept you know, strafing with your gun. I mean... And everybody was that particular eye level whenever you shot. And uh, your little face would become more bloody whenever you fell into, like, acid or you're getting shot by these weird demon creatures and all that. You know, you got the BFG big fucking gun and I just the armor, the health, and finding the red and blue door keys. And, like, noise whenever the doors would open. Like, oh, man, dude, Doom was it, – it, it was a lot of fun, especially the OG Doom. Uh, Doom. I never – Played the one on original Xbox, which was, I think, Doom 3, but I've definitely watched people play it, and it was, it was kind of creepy. They changed the uh, game up a little bit. I have, was it, Doom Eternal, and then I have Doom 2016 on my PS4. I should probably give those a go sometime soon. Uh, Legend of Zelda Ocarina of Time. Yeah, I already put Legend of Zelda on here, Link to the Past. I, I don't think I've ever beaten this one. I definitely remember playing it here and there. I don't think I dedicated as much time to other Zelda games. 
Um, it's not. I, I can see this one being regarded as one of the best games of all time, and it goes on lists all the time. And it's number two in this category. I could see that. It's just uh, I need to go back and either pick up an N64 or I need to get the uh, Switch N64 emulation uh, aspect so I can play the N64 game on there. I definitely want to go back and play it and beat it. I think as far as Zelda terms, I want to go... I pulled out my Wii so I can play and beat Skyward Sword. And then on my original NES, I have uh, emulated... I want to play Oracle of Ages and Oracle of Seasons. And then... I will probably, well, I mean, I have Twilight Princess. I want to say I've beaten it before a couple times. I have the game guide. I don't know, but I definitely want to play Skyward Sword first before I play anything else. I do have Breath of the Wild too. I've only dedicated maybe like an hour to it. Uh, I felt overwhelmed. Maybe I need to get back into it. I just, I felt like playing other stuff. Sorry, guys. I mean, I'll, I will get back into Zelda. I, I love Zelda games. I really do. Anyway, number one, Super Mario World, and rightly so. I can see that. Yeah. Okay. All right, so I have here 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20. Okay, so they had 25 games. I took off five, and I have my top 20. So I will shoot, okay? I will go obviously from the bottom, and I will go to the top. Um, I haven't... <laughs> I'll probably put Half-Life 2 at the bottom. Um, I'll put GoldenEye at number 19. I will put Symphony of the Night at 18. No, 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 no. That one probably deserves to be higher. I really enjoy the uh, Metroidvania style. I just I haven't given that one time yet. I have it on my PS3 on the PS1 emulator before the uh, PSN store went down on the PS3. I made sure to buy that one on purpose. Uh, fuck, dude. Uh, Super Mario Kart, yeah, I'll probably put Super Mario Kart at the bottom because I'm just like, eh, Street Fighter. I'll probably play Street Fighter 2 over Super Mario Kart or nothing personal. Just I'll put Mario Kart, or excuse me, Mario 64 at 16. Uh, I will put MGS, Metal Gear Solid, at 15. Only because I haven't necessarily played it yet. I, I think that that's a fair statement because otherwise I'm like, well, I'm, uh, I'll probably put OutRun 2 at 14. I will put, I mean, Halo's good. I love Halo. I really do. I've just, I've played it so many times and I'll put Halo at, original Halo at 13. I will put uh, Final Fantasy 7 at 12. I'll put Sonic at 11. I will put Link to the Past at 10. It probably deserves to be higher on my list, <laughs> but, uh. I'll probably put Symphony of the Night at 9 because I'm very, very curious. I really want to play that one. Shenmue was really cool. I definitely want to go back to playing that one as well. Uh, R-Type was a lot of fun. 7. Shadow of the Colossus will be 6. Resident... No. Okay. I will put Doom at 5. Resident Evil 4 at 4. And what else am I missing? I have 3, 2... Ooh, okay. Okay. I will put Streets of Rage 2 at 3. I will put probably Super Mario World at 2 and the Tetris at 1. Uh, I was debating about putting Super Mario World at number 1 only because – I mean it's it's great. 
there, there are some things that I still haven't necessarily found, like uh, all of the uh, access to uh, how to get like through Star World or how to get like all of the uh, exclamation points so you can get the extra blocks. I don't think I've ever 100%ed it. I've definitely gotten pretty far and close with that aspect. Who doesn't love Tetris? I mean, everybody, it's applicable and accessible everywhere. You can play it on almost anything, your phone, computer, Game Boy, uh, PS1, PS2. I mean, it's everywhere. Tetris is everywhere, and it's still just as fun as it was when it came out today. Ah, let me get some water. Sorry about that. So I will reiterate my list to you guys. I have Half-Life at number 20, GoldenEye 007 on 64 at 19, Super Mario Kart on uh, Super Nintendo at 18, Street Fighter 2 at 17, Mario 64 at 16, Metal Gear Solid 1 at number 15, sorry Austin, <laughs> um, what do I have here, uh, number 14 is Outrun 2006, uh, I want to say I've played it, I need to play more of it, uh, I'm not really a big racing game fan, but it was a lot of fun, I had fun with that, it was just different, Halo of course, the original at uh, number 13, I just think Halo 2, uh, 3, 4, and Reach were just better, I mean obviously it's not on this list because it's not necessarily as old. Uh, 12 is Final Fantasy 7. I had fun with it. I just preferred the other Final Fantasies. I'm looking forward to playing 8, 9, 6. Well, basically most of them. I, I no particular order. Uh, 11 is Sonic. I love Sonic 1. I think I'm more of a Sonic 2 and 3 fan, but Sonic 1 is fun. It's a staple. It needs to be on this list that high. Link to the Past. Love that game. Beating it. It's so much fun. Love that game. Super Nintendo. Symphony of the Night. I'm curious to play that game. Uh, I do enjoy Castlevania games. I've beaten one. Uh, I've almost near the end of Bloodstains on, uh, or no, Bloodlines, I'm sorry, Castlevania Bloodlines on uh, Sega Genesis, and uh, Simon's Quest is interesting, I'm intrigued, it's, it's weird, it's cryptic, it's hard, uh, and then Castlevania 3 on, or not, original Nintendo is a lot of fun, and Super Castlevania 4, with the whole uh, aspect of, you know, you can traverse differently with your whip, it was just really, really cool, um, but I will definitely go back and play uh, Symphony of the Night soon. Shinmu is number 8, very revolutionary for the Dreamcast. R-Type, great, great shooter. I love my shooters. That's number seven. Six is Shadow of the Colossus, a giant boss rush game. Beautiful graphics, just fun. Uh, very immersive. Uh, Doom was a lot of fun. I have a lot of nostalgia for that one, number five. Number four is Resident Evil 4. Fucking love that game. Super Mario World is uh, number three. Number two. Oh, boy, where did I... I can't even read my own fucking... Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Number two is Super Mario World. Number three was Streets of Rage 2, excuse me. And then Tetris, obviously, being number one. All right. Wow, I had a lot to say about that list. Then again, I'm a big gamer, so big surprise there. Twelve of the most famously heavy metal guitarists of all time. Let's, uh, let's take a gander here. Number 12 is Adam Jones. Adam Jones being the guitarist for Tool. Yeah, okay, 12 heavy metal guitarists. I mean, they're more like prog rock, but sure, why not, whatever. All right. You know, I'm splitting hairs here, I guess. Prog rock can have many different, I guess, kind of uh, different variations. Inspired by surrealist masters like Salvador Dali, H.R. Geiger, Adam Jones developed a unique aesthetic defining Tool's visual identity. Absolutely. Um, Adam Jones, so Tool. I will do another little list here. Adam Jones, Tool. 12 most famous. Okay, 12 famous heavy guitarists. I'll just label it that. Heavy guitarists. Okay, Adam Jones. Got it. Look. Scrolling up here, Devin Townsend, Frank Zappa to Meshuggah. Okay, Meshuggah's cool. Yeah, yeah. And Frank Zappa's interesting too. Okay, all right, all right, all right. Devin Townsend, he will go on here. Devin Townsend, Meshuggah. Uh, they're, they're interesting, Meshuggah. It's a different kind of 
I don't know, different kind of like heavy hard rock metal. It's it's interesting. Okay. Uh, Jeff Loomis from the band Nevermore. I don't really know them all that much, so I can't really. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't. Yeah, it's. I'm gonna have to give that one a pass. I'm sorry. Moving on. Uh, Marty Friedman. Oh yeah, good old fucking Megadeth. Yeah, hell yeah. Of course, his icons being Jimi Hendrix and Randy Rhodes, because he was able to definitely uh, infuse the two in his own right with Hangar 18, Tornado Soul, Symphony of Destruction, leading him to the throne of Megadeth in 1990. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay, Marty Friedman absolutely needs to be on this one. Marty Friedman, Megadeth, totally. Love Megadeth. Okay. All right, what do we got here? Zach Wilde, of course, you know, being in Pantera now with Ozzy Osbourne, you know, No More Tears, Crazy Babies, Miracle Man, Stillborn in this river, fired up, Black Label Society, I mean, uh, yeah, Zach Wilde's, he's, he's incredible, okay, alright, yep, okay, he's got, he's always got really cool guitars, looks like a fucking ripped-ass Viking, too, always, alright, what do we got here, Chuck Skulldiner, Shulldiner, whatever, from Death, of course, yeah, Death is fantastic, I, I really enjoy Death, Zombie Ritual is fucking fantastic, Crystal Mountain pulled the plug, I mean, they're just, yeah. the dude was a god, you know, rest in peace, man, Chuck Shulldiner, I, I really enjoy the band Death, really cool logo, just really cool, just that, you know, groundbreaking, like, death metal sound uh, next to uh, Cannibal Corpse at the time, so yeah, Chuck deserves to be on this list, Richie Blackmore, in uh, Deep Purple, yeah, okay. Richie Blackmore, yeah. Okay. Yeah, with his song, obviously, Smoke on the Water, Highway Star, Child in Time. Uh, you know, he founded the band Rainbow, songs like Stargazer, Man on the Silver Mountain, Gates of Babylon, uh, Richard Blackmore. Yeah, he's just revolutionary in the uh, game of uh, heavy-sounding uh, rock at that particular time. Of course, Adrian Smith, uh, Iron Maiden. Yeah, yeah, yep, 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 yep. Oh, man, I love it. Oh, I love Iron Maiden. Uh, Wasted Years, Fear of the Dark, Two Minutes of Midnight. I mean, beyond his work in Iron Maiden, Adrian also pursued solo projects and collaborations in the early 90s. He has two critically acclaimed solo albums, Silver and Gold, as well as Universe. But, uh, yeah, being inspired by bands, obviously, like Black Sabbath and uh, Zeppelin at the time, of course, Iron Maiden had their own flavor of mysticism and uh, just fantasy. Just It's awesome. Beautiful, beautiful guitars. Of course, Dave had to be on this list. I'm surprised Dave – well, I mean, two Megadeth uh, – I'm going to – I might – well, they're both – fuck it. I never put normally two of the same – uh, I guess band member or two of the same directors. I mean, I'm putting I'm putting Dave on here, dude. Dave Mustaine is phenomenal. Dave Mustaine, Megadeth. Yes, absolutely. I will put Megadeth on here twice. I don't care. I like Dave Mustaine. Uh, fantastic. I mean, what hasn't already been said about Megadeth? James. They put James over fucking. James is just rhythm guitar. Dave's like lead. I mean, come on, man. I, I like James, but okay, okay, okay. I'll put him on this list. Okay, I'm more of a, uh, I think, Megadeth fan over... Well, I do... Okay, I take that back. I would probably go... My big four now, I would... It's obviously subjective, and it's it's always, like, mood-based. If I did my If I did my own big four, I'd probably go... Fuck, that's hard, man. I would probably start Slayer, and then I'd probably go... Metallica, Megadeth, and Anthrax. 
Usually I think I go Slayer, Megadeth, Metallica, Anthrax. It's nothing against Anthrax. I just don't listen to it as much as I do the others. I do enjoy Scott Ian. I do. I do. I just, I, I just don't listen to it as much. Man, that's, that fucking – that like hurt to say that I put Metallica over Megadeth. Man, yeah, but Metallica is just so important. Well, they're all important in their own right. But anyway, James Hetfield is their number three. I will put my own numbers here momentarily. Randy Rhodes, number two. Black Sabbath, of course. Of course, starting fucking basically everything in regards to heavy metal as we know it. So, yeah, he deserves to be on this list. Absolutely. Number one, Tony Iommi. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. As far as best, uh, most famous uh, heavy metal, right? yeah, hell yeah, Tony Iommi, absolutely. Okay, okay, okay. I feel like Randy definitely took uh, the torch where uh, Tony, you know, kind of left off, I guess per se. But uh, okay, so I have one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven. I have eleven because I took off that one. Uh, I will probably put. The Meshuggah one at the uh, bottom, I will do 11 there. Zach Wilde will probably go at number 10. Richie Blackman, Deep Purple, will go number 9. Fuck, man. Probably put Randy Rhodes at number 8. Probably put Marty Friedman at number 7. Fuck. As far as most influential and heavy, like, ah, shit. Yeah, put Adam Jones at number 6. Tool. Probably put number five, Iron Maiden. Fuck, that's four, three, two. Fuck. As far as most heavy, like influential and all that now, yeah, most famous heavy guitarist. I mean, a lot of people know, I feel like a lot of people know these other ones. Tony Iommi, James Hetfield, Dave Mustaine, and Chuck Schuldiner. Uh, fuck, man. I guess my order, though, I'll probably put James at four. James Hetfield Metallica. I will probably put Chuck at three. I'll put Dave at two, and I'll put Tony Iommi at one. Yeah, Tony's just the most famous, probably heavy guitarist uh, of all time. He deserves to be their number one as well as my number one. Okay, all right, moving on. Ranked most hilarious comedies of all time. Oh, my God. So most hilarious comedies. Okay, let me see what we got here. What they have and what I will have as well to add to it. 31 was Ghostbusters. So I will definitely put Ghostbusters on. Yeah. Because they labeled it this time as a comedy. Uh, I'm sure it comes up in other comedic uh, lists. Uh, to me, it's always more of a, uh, I guess, horror adventure comedy is kind of how I viewed it. Ah, sorry, I'm talking too much. Apparently, I need some water. All right. So Ghostbusters Trading Places. I can't say anything about this one because I haven't seen it. I want to say I have it um, either a DVD or I have it um, digitally. I just haven't watched it yet. The uh, Dan Aykroyd, Eddie Murphy movie. I'm sure it's funny. Nothing against it. I just can't say anything about it personally. Uh, Some like it hot. Uh, it's funny. Yeah, you know, Marilyn Monroe and uh, Jack Lemmon and Tony Curtis. And yeah, it's it's funny. I'll put it on this list. I'll probably put it at the bottom is my guess. But I've seen it. I know it. And it's masterfully blending slapstick humor, mistaken identities, romantic entanglements, delightfully uh, timeless classic. Continues to captivate audiences with its wit and charm today. Uh, Jack Lemmon's very, very good at uh, slapstick at the time. Uh, Tony Curtis is funny in his own right, too. Uh, Jamie Lee Curtis's dad. Uh, but yeah, Jack, Le Jack Lemmon's great, man. I, I love old Jack Lemmon films. They're funny. 
uh, Borat. Yeah, I would definitely put Borat on there funny or as well because he pushed the boundaries because, I mean, it's it was bold in its boundary-pushing humor at the time. Fearless portrayal of you know, a journalist delivering a relentless stream of outrageous and satirical moments, highlighting societal prejudices as well as cultural clashes because people were unaware that it was he was making a movie. They thought he was being legitimately, you know, who he is and who he was. And it was funny. Anyway, 27, uh, Groundhog Day. Uh, I've seen it. I don't really necessarily remember it all that much. Uh, considering the title Groundhog Day, it should repeat itself. Therefore, you should remember it. But uh, <laughs> regarded as one of the best comedy movies of all time, thanks to its ingenious premise, Bill Murray's standout performance, blending humor, introspection, philosophical undertones, elevating it beyond a typical comedy for the time and it still stands the test of time it's comedic masterpiece that resonates with audiences on a profound level today uh i'll put it on this list uh i've seen it been a long long time same with like what about bob uh a lot of his like earlier obscure comedies i'm like yeah i've seen them but i I just don't remember them as well as other uh bill murray films monty python holy grail yeah okay okay it is funny. It's just, I don't know, British humor, it's it's just different. It's not, I don't know. I'm one to talk. I mean, I love Bean. I love Rowan Atkinson. I love that shit. But I mean, Money Python, Holy Grail, that's probably the one that I remember the most compared to like, you know, uh, The Life of Brian and all their other films that they have within their canon or catalog. But uh, sure, I'll put it on this list. That one also might be kind of a throwaway title as well. Forgetting Sir Marshall... I don't think it's one of the most hilarious comedies of all time. I I wouldn't put it on this list. No. I mean, it's funny, but it's not going on my list. Clueless. I'd say it's more of like a coming of age kind of like goofy 90s. It's it's funny, but I wouldn't put it on this list. I'm moving on. The Jerk. Yeah, Steve Martin, The Jerk. Love that movie. Okay, yeah. I remember watching that like on TV when it was on Syndicate back in the day with my dad like all the time. Then I had a VHS as a kid. I don't have it anymore. I want to say I have a DVD copy now. It's It continues to bring laughter and joy to audiences, solidifying its status as a comedic classic to this day with its absurdities. Yeah, it's just, it's just so dumb. It's great. Love it. Uh, White Chicks. I wouldn't put it on my – I wouldn't even <sighs> – if there was like a top maybe like 100 maybe it would be in there because it's important because it's definitely influential in its own regard. I don't think it's that funny. I mean they're making a sequel supposedly that's coming out pretty soon. I have a feeling it's not going to do that well but we'll see what happens. Um, Animal House. Yeah. Yeah, I'll put Animal House on here because I mean I could see of all time. It stood the test of time. People still talk about it. National Lampoon's original, you know, with uh, Mr. Belushi before he passed. Rest in peace. It's it's a very important film. Office Space. Yep, love that movie. I'm glad they haven't touched that one and left that one alone or made a sequel or a prequel or whatever the case may be. You know, Mike Judge. Yeah, it's... You touched my stapler. Oh, man. Ah, oh, so funny. Airplane. Yep, I'm glad it's on this list. Airplane is number 19. All right. American Pie, yeah, yeah. At least the maybe the first two or the first three are definitely really, really important as far as uh, I guess you know high school, college comedies for sure. Yeah, but American Pie, yes, absolutely. I mean, it set the tone for like Blink One Eight Two as well. Like you know, they were able to be in this film, and you know, Shannon Elizabeth, Jason Biggs, I mean, Allison Hannigan, um, like so many people were in it, and just 
took off from there. Tara Reed, I mean, come on. Yeah, American Pie is great. Uh, Eugene Levy, of course. Uh, Mrs. Doubtfire, of course. Yep, stood the test of time. Mrs. Doubtfire, number 17. Okay, absolutely love that fucking movie. So funny. Spinal Tap, ah, it's funny, but I probably wouldn't put it on a list. I wouldn't. It's a mockumentary, which is still, yeah, considered a comedy, but I, I, it's not going to be on my list. Oh, excuse me. Sorry, guys. Uh, Big Lebowski. Yeah. Uh, it won one of my lists uh, last time. I don't know with these contenders here if it will win this list. We'll see. But uh, it's definitely a cult classic. Love that film, The Coen Brothers. Marx Brothers left their mark with Duck. Oh, Duck Soup is on this list again. Yeah, I'll put Duck Soup on there. I, everyone always only really talks about Duck Soup. I mean, you know, there's Coconuts. There's so many other freaking Marx Brothers uh, films within their catalog that are really uh, like A Day at the Races, Night of the Opera. Like, you know, you know Marx Brothers are great. I, I love their uh, work. Napoleon Dynamite, I know it's very subjective with a lot of people. It's very polarizing. Either people love it or they hate it. And me, I guess personally, <laughs> I loved it. I thought it was so dumb. It was great. I, I, I will put it on my list. I don't know where it's going to go yet, but Napoleon Dynamite here is number 13, ranked above all those other movies that I mentioned, which is pretty pretty crazy. Yes, thank you. I am so glad it is on this list. Not another teen movie is number 12. Fuck yeah, dude. I love that movie. I don't think I've ever seen it on any comedic list, like, ever. Oh, man. I'm so glad it's on this list, though. Not another teen movie. Okay. Absolutely. I will keep it on this list. Let's see what it lost to. Spaceballs. I can see the importance of Spaceballs being number 11. I could see that. Why not? Mel Brooks, uh, Rick Moranis. Come on, dude. It's great. Dr. Strangelove will not be on my list because I did not care for that movie. Maybe I need to try again. I just thought it was dumb. I did I did not care for it. Number nine, Caddyshack. Yeah, Caddyshack definitely deserves to be on this list. It's fucking phenomenal. Still funny to this day. I like Bill Murray in that role. I'll tell you that. Um, what do we got here? Dirty Grandpa. I will not put Dirty Grandpa on this list because I just – it's okay. I don't know why it's saying most hilarious comedies of all time, why it's – because whenever I hear like the phrase all time, I'm thinking like there should be some sort of, uh, I guess, era or at least years involved. Because whenever you hear vintage, vintage is typically 20 to 25 years, if I'm not mistaken. I believe antiques are ty typically 100 years or older. So when I hear all time, I'm thinking anywhere between at least like, I don't know, probably 20 to 50 years ago, if not maybe longer. There should be some sort of, I don't know, year set in tone in regards to these uh, – types of uh, categories here but yeah i'm not gonna put dirty grandpa on my list planes trains automobiles yep you're damn right that movie's freaking funny too okay a lot of uh freaking steve martin films well maybe not a lot i think i have like two or three on here but let me see what else we have dumb and dumber yeah dude dumb and dumber is number six yeah it's <laughs> I, i'm even just laughing like thinking about it that movie's so but like even though i've seen it probably like 50 times like I don't know, man. It's just, it's still funny. There's always like something I miss, like as far as a, a quote that they say, or I don't know. It's so funny. Ah, another sip of water. Yeah, cause Jeff Daniels was just coming off of uh, what arachnophobia a couple years prior, which is pretty interesting. Uh, the sequel coming out here pretty soon too. Number five, horrible bosses. No, it's not going on my list. Nope. Nope, Doves does not need to be above those ones uh, aforementioned. Nope, I will not put it on this list. Anchorman, I'll put Anchorman on this list. It's it's funny. 
it, it definitely deserves, I think it deserves to be on a top, uh, what, 30 or whatever the hell list or whatever. It's, it's funny. It is. It's incredibly important too. Uh, Young Frankenstein. Absolutely. I will put another, uh, Mel Brooks on here. Sure. Why not? You know? <clears throat> okay. Young Frankenstein still a classic. Absolutely. Uh, what else we got here? Bridesmaids. Nope. Not going on my list. Like I said before, it was funny at the time. I, I haven't seen it in a long time. It was funny. I just don't feel like I need to relive it personally. Number one. Oh, that was their number one? Man. Number one was fucking Bridesmaid. I'm not even, no. I'm not putting it on my list. Okay, how many do I have here? Most hilarious comedies of all time. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen, nineteen, twenty. I have twenty-one. Okay, I will probably put some like it hot at the bottom because I don't really remember it. It's funny in its own right, but I'm just like, eh, whatever. I will probably put Animal House at 20. Same thing. I've seen it before. I'm just like, eh, whatever. I will probably put... I don't know, man. These are all, like, really good. I don't want Big Lebowski to win again, but it will probably be maybe, like, top five or something. Uh, shoot, dude. Uh, oh, dude, yeah. Monty Python is definitely going at number 19. It's just... I don't know. It's just not my thing i'm like eh, whatever Spaceball, same thing it's funny it is it is it probably deserves to be higher but i'm just like eh, whatever planes trains i will put it 17 i i think uh mel brooks did better films than Spaceballs. personally i could see that being his one of his most famous next to like blazing saddles it's just not necessarily my thing fuck man that's tough i will probably oh groundhog day yeah because i don't necessarily remember it uh i will put borat at 15 this is tough because there's a lot of good ones here. I will put Duck Soup at 14. It's important, but I mean, not as important to me as the other films that I will uh, be uh, rattling off to here to you guys momentarily. I will put The Jerk at 17. Oh, I'm sorry. Not... No, no, no. I'm sorry. I can't even fucking count. 13. Excuse me. I can count. I'm about to write 17 twice. Okay. Uh... Um, okay, 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 don't, don't anchor me, okay, okay, uh, yeah, go, Ghostbusters is funny, it is, and it's nothing against it, I'm putting it at number 12, I just think that some of these other films, personally, are funnier to me, or more funny, I guess would be the uh, phrase here, uh, I will put Airplane at 11, I will put Napoleon Dynamite at 10, I will put Office Space at 9, um, Put uh, Young Frankenstein at eight, Caddyshack at seven, Anchorman at six, uh, American Pie at five, Miss Doubtfire at four. <sighs> Fuck, I got three, two, yeah. Fuck, that's tough, man. Which one's more fun? Damn. I'll probably put Big Lebowski at three, Dumb and Dumber at two, and then Not Another Team Movie at one. I love Not Another Team Movie. It's so fucking funny. I think that that's fair, too, as far as the top three. Uh, Big Lebowski being three. Because it's not just funny. There's other stuff in there besides it being just uh, a, labeled as a black comedy film. Uh, Dumb and Dumbers, it's iconic. It's a classic. Everybody loves that one. I think that's a good spot for it, number two. Not Another Team Movie. I love that movie so much. That is my number one. That was a tough list to uh, kind of narrow down there. Um, okay, what do we got here? 12 terrible movies um, <laughs> that hands down deserve the title of worst film ever. Okay, let's... Uh, what? 
Let's take a look here, I guess. Um, how is this even? Okay, there we go. Starting from here. Okay, The Cat in the Hat. Yes, yeah, so 12 Most Terrible Films. 12 Most Terrible Films. Okay, I, I wonder if like Munchie or if uh, fucking Ghoulies or whatever, or maybe Garbage Pail Kids is going to make this list or uh, Troll or elves or whatever 12 most terrible movies uh the room you know all that crap so cat in the hat yeah it's pretty bad yeah i definitely could see it being on this list it's i think one of the last films that myers really did uh i don't remember i don't even remember why i hated it according to mike myers i have blacked the whole thing out of my memory it's the only time i remember ever wanting to get up and walk out of a film my kids were little and they were watching it it felt like an absolute torture i've seen other bad films but was able to just shrug this one off but for some reason i felt like this movie was trying to kill me <laughs> well I, I guess your performance in it shows too dude so moving on number 11 skyline that one gets a pass never heard of it never seen it uh, I don't really have any desire to, uh, whatever. Moving on. Number 10, Independence Day Resurgence. The sequel, I don't think I ever saw it because the first one, it's iconic. It's classic. It's not like if I did like a top action sci-fi, maybe out of a hundred, it would make it maybe a 50. That's tough. But Independence Day is not one of those things that I consistently talk about, you know, that I feel like I need to consistently talk about. Um... So, yeah, no. Independence Day, Resurgence, the sequel, I no, I'm not even putting it on my list. Uh, Aragon, yeah, the book was fantastic, Christopher Paolini. I was really hoping that these films were going to take off, but uh, they, they need to redo it, man. I can't believe this film came out 17 years ago now, in 2006. It had really cool potential. It was disappointing. It's inheritance cycle, uh, inheritance being the uh, cycle of books. Uh it was just a really cool book. It's masterful storytelling, the way that it's written, you know, by a kid in like, I think like high school, he finished it and then like went to college early because of that book or something. And then, um, I think I want to say he developed the landscape for the film based on where he lives in Montana. And then the movie came out and it was just blah. Uh, I always hoped that someone would end up making this, uh, book into a, either a newer movie series or like a TV adapted show or something. There's so much potential with, uh, this series. It was a lot of fun. Circle, it has fucking Emma Watson in it. Never heard of it. Never seen it. 2017 came out. I'm not even going to put it on this list. Uh, Yoga Hosers. What the fuck is that? 2016. Two girls that look like uh, the girl version of Clerks. Uh, I don't know it. Oh, it's a Kevin Smith was there. Introduced. I worked with... Oh, wow. It was so bad. Uh, Kevin Smith had that to say about it. It was so bad. Okay, interesting. Yeah, that makes sense because I had no idea. All right. Uh, moving on, not not talking about that one because I don't know it. Jack and Jill was pretty bad, yeah. The freaking uh, Adam Sandler film, yeah. I, I would. It's okay. It's just not. It's not very good. I mean, he, yeah, he kind of lost his. Uh, anyway, Al Pacino's in it, obviously, and it has what's his nuts, fucking Andy Samberg, and I just don't really like looking at that guy. <laughs> uh, Jack and Jill will be on my list. I will keep it on there. Sixty-five. I didn't think it was that bad. I, I definitely watched it. Uh, I downloaded it and I watched it. I thought it was great, man. I, I really enjoyed 65. It, it, not like, oh my God, like one of the greatest sci-fi action films ever. But for what it's worth, uh, I didn't think it was I, – it made sense to me. I mean from what I'm hearing uh, or what I'm reading here is they just go from clip to clip and it doesn't make sense with Adam Driver, 25 minutes of very little action and like the plot development. Yeah, I mean for what it is, I, I enjoyed it. 
I probably wouldn't put it on like, once again, like a sci-fi top list type deal, but I had a good time with it. Jeepers Creepers, I will not even put that on this list, nor will I talk about it because the uh, original director was a uh, registered sex offender. So moving on, I will not talk about Jeepers Creepers. Last Airbender, I don't think I ever saw it, only because I was told it was incredibly bad, and I loved uh, the original um, anime, or Amerame, the uh, Avatar Last Airbender. So I will not even talk about this one. Dragon Ball Evolution, I was also told that one was also bad, and enjoying the original anime as well as playing the video games, having the... Excuse the uh, technical difficulties there. Uh, I was about to end with uh, the 12 most terrible movies and my subjective list of four. Uh, pretty much just the way that I wrote them down is how I decided to uh, convey them to you guys. Uh, my most terrible uh, being number four as far as uh, Cat in the Hat. Three, Aragon, 2006. Two, Jack and Jill, the Adam Sandler um, freaking Al Pacino and Andy Samberg. I thought it was pretty dumb. And then Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey was number one. It just it was just god-awful. And then the next list I did was uh, seven 70s classic rock albums that you need to own. I decided to pick up four of them, and I will tell you uh, my number four through number one. As far as uh, least, I felt like uh, needing to own compared to number one being needing to own. ACDC's Highway to Hell because I was always more of a, a fly on the wall or a flick of the switch, uh, razor's edge, you know, back in black, uh, perhaps, uh, fan as far as, I mean, Highway to Hell is good. It is. I enjoy Angus and, uh, you know, Brian Young and so forth and all that. But, uh, uh, next one being number three, Black Sabbath's Paranoid, Tony Iommi, of course, uh, Geezer Butler on, uh, bass. It was just, you know, obviously Ozzy, of course, uh, Led Zeppelin's four. I'm going to put it number two as a uh, black dog, stairway to heaven. Um, you know, when the lovey breaks has some of their most iconic songs ever, as far as classic rock goes of all time. And then dark side of the moon, fucking fantastic. Uh, 1973's Pink Floyd's, uh, prism album, you know, with, uh, uh, what breathe, uh, on the run, obviously, uh, syncing up with the first half of wizard of Oz, um, time, a great gig in the sky, any color you like brain damage, eclipse, like, uh, you know, us and them. It just, Fucking Dark Side of the Moon is iconic. I, I guess it's a little subjective because I'm a huge Pink Floyd fan. So anyway, Tales from the Crypt uh, is what I actually decided to watch. Uh, the first two episodes from season one. Uh, the first episode, The Man Who Was Death, aired June 10th, 1989, 26 minutes. After the death penalty is abolished, an executioner continues his former job through freelancing. Directed by Walter Hill, starring Will Sadler, Bill Sadler, you know, from... Um, what I talked about Rocket Man when he uh, <laughs> he's in outer space. It was hemorrhoid cream. He's eating hemorrhoid cream. Uh, it has it's it was a really cool uh, first episode. William Sadler plays Niles uh, Talbot from uh, Oklahoma, also known as Bill Sadler, as I stated. Roy Brocksmith as Vic, very very uh, famous individual. David Wool as Warden Havers. He plays the uh, warden in this. Uh, Jarrett or Garrett Graham as Theodore Karn, who else is uh, very famous in this particular one. Robert Winley. Uh, basically the guy who gets the uh, uh what is it he gets his like hand broken when he puts like the cigar on uh, arnold schwarzenegger's chest in uh, one of the terminators in the beginning he's uh one of the uh, i guess villains in this if you will uh and he dies and so forth yeah i mean it's it's pretty cool um after working for two years in the electric uh workshop of a penitentiary electrician niles talbot william sadler's character has been promoted to executioner operating an electric chair he appreciates his job when the death penalty is abolished in his state niles loses his job but he decides to become a vigilante punishing criminals that are realized or excuse me yeah criminals are realized uh, that the justice system uh, it works no fucking <laughs> 
They are punished criminals that are released by the justice system. Excuse me. Can't fucking speak English. Until the day that the death penalty is implemented again within that state. Uh, trivially, let's take a look here. William Sadler initially auditioned for the role of the detective who arrests Niles Talbot but asked about his audition uh, to play Talbot. Uh, the casting director informed Sadler that they thought Christopher Walken or John Malkovich uh, for the role initially. Nevertheless, Sadler was allowed to audition and was eventually cast as Talbot. That would have been interesting. Or I could see maybe Christopher Walken or John Malkovich as the uh, warden or perhaps uh, one of the policemen who drag him away when uh, he gets electrocuted. Walter Hill agreed to give William Sadler the lead role, only if he vowed to perform it exactly as he had for the audition. So he did it in his uh, Oklahoma accent, apparently. That's interesting. Unlike the majority of the episodes, the Crypt Keeper doesn't announce the name above the installment. Uh, Will Sadler had a cameo in... Green Mile in 1999, which, like this episode, is centered around the death penalty and the electric chair. Roy Brocksmith, lastly, would play a bartender in the episode Cutting Cards. Oh, boy. What do we got here? I believe, yeah, it's an HBO uh, show, and I definitely, I realized that as soon as, you know, a couple minutes into the episode, I'm like, oh, yeah, a little random uh, gratuitous nudity there. Filmed in Harbor Freeway, LA, California. Production company's Tales from the Crypt, Holdings, as well as Home Box Office HBO all right, let's uh, take a look at episode number two because I watched that one as well. And All Through the House, a Christmas episode airing June 10th, 1989. And yeah, it's about Christmas. A greedy woman makes a mistake of murdering her husband while an escaped mental patient dressed in a Santa Claus outfit is on the loose. Directed by Bob Zemeckis, Robert Zemeckis. Written by Fred Decker and Stephen Dodd. Starring John Cassier, Mary Ellen Trainer, and Larry Drake. John Cassier, the Crypt Keeper's voice, of course. It's a very small cast in this one. Larry Drake, I had a feeling he plays the Santa. Larry Drake being uh, the villain in the first um, fucking Darkman, Sam Raimi, as well as uh, Larry Drake being the dentist in the film called uh, The Dentist, the 90s, uh, I guess, dental slasher killer, however you want to kind of view that one, I guess. <laughs> it's interesting. So on Christmas Eve storyline here, a mother controls the anxiety of uh, her little daughter, Carrie Ann, for Santa Claus putting her to bed. Excuse me. <clears throat> Let me get a sip of water here. Sorry. She comes to the living room and killing her, uh, her husband. Hits him in the head with a fireplace poker, expecting to receive his life insurance and stay with her lover. While she is dumping his body in the yard, the dangerous patient of a mental institution, dressed like Santa, attacks her, but she uh, succeeds to escape and lock the door. However, she is unable to call the police since the body of her husband is in the front yard out of the blue. Carrie calls her mother with an unexpected guest being Larry Drake. Um, trivially, the story has previously been adapted into a 1992 segment film version of the uh, comic. That's that's interesting. Okay. In Lethal Weapon 2, Roger Mar Murtaugh, yeah, oh, that, uh, Roger Murtaugh, that's, uh, fucking Mel Gibson, excuse me, has her television debut, uh, Roger Murtaugh's daughter, excuse me, on a TV commercial that airs during this episode. You can see, um, the family watching it with the sound off as they wait for the daughter's ad. Interestingly enough, Mary Ellen Trainer made appearances in all four Lethal Weapon films, just like she was in this particular episode of the, uh, season one of Tales from the Crypt. In the season one episode and all through the house, the radiator, radiator, yeah, the fucking rate, what the hell's a radiator? The radio announcer apparently can't speak English either, warns the Gaines County area of the escaped maniac in a Santa suit. This is a reference to William Gaines, a publisher of the comic books in the 1950s. Also, when the police officer calls the wife, he says his name is Feldstein, a reference to Al Feldstein, one of the Gaines' top EC comic employees. That's, that's cool. It's the second time Larry Drake plays an escaped psych patient that goes on a killing spree. He played one in Dr. Giggles as well. Ha, I mentioned that one. Okay, the title is the first line from A Visit from St. Nicholas, the uh, 
classic, uh, I guess, lullaby, if you will. First published anonymously in 1823 by Clement Clark Moore. Okay, all right, well, what else we got here on this? Oh, uh, released June 10th, 1989, language, English, production companies, HBO, as well as Tales from the Crypt Holdings. Okay. All right, so yeah, I mean, I haven't really gotten too much into Tales from the Crypt, but I, mean, I like that they're only, you know, like 25, 30-minute segments. They're, they're a lot of fun to watch. It's kind of like a creep show, but just shorter. It, it really much uh, so is. Um, yeah. All right, so moving on to the next thing. Let's go. <laughs> All right, good morning, guys. Uh, well, at least it's morning over here as of this recording. I So I stayed the night at my uh, buddy's pad uh, before uh, work. It was just a little more convenient. It was a little closer to work. Uh, he's a junior guy. He's definitely younger than me, probably by like 10, 11 years. And I was like, dude, let's go to the skate park, man. I was like, let's go live up some old school times. Went to two different skate parks and, uh, and then got Jack in the Box for dinner. Just like a bunch of like high school, like, I don't know, teenage boys, I guess. It was just... Good old classic fun. And then on that note, I, uh, I decided to bring over uh, some classic uh, mini consoles. And I was like, dude, let's uh, bust out the Sega Genesis. And I decided to play two, three. I think it was like one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. I decided to play eight games with them, six being uh, two player. Uh, we played till about maybe 10, 11 at night. And then uh, the other two were a uh, first player. He just wanted to watch me a little bit. But first one we played, I want to talk about Streets of Rage. It still holds up. That's what we played. We played the original. Sure, on his 60-inch screen, it was a little spread out, the pixels. But the music is still there. The gameplay is still there. The uh, items are obviously incredible. The um, As far as uh, weapons go, you know, as far as getting an apple, uh, a turkey leg, or whatever the hell it is, um, you can't run, but you can run, I believe, in the sequels, uh, like double tap left or right and so forth. Um, there's different planes. You know, there's obviously the bottom, the middle, and like the top as far as uh, moving around goes. I mean, it was just, it was a lot of fun, man. We had fun. We beat it. I think he finally like died maybe on like the last boss with whatever credits we had. I was like, all right, I made it this far. I was like, I got this. I was like, I have to beat this. And I did. It was a lot of fun. The last boss is a little cheap. I mean, even then, some of the bosses are designed to be a little cheap. It's, you know... A, quarter munching game in the arcade originally um it was just it was so much fun man it still holds up it's a, a side-scrolling beat-em-up centering on the efforts of several ex-police vigilantes trying to raid a fictional large american city from a crime syndicate that has corrupted its local government it is the first three within the franchise originally on sega genesis obviously they made streets of rage 4 on modern consoles uh i definitely plan on getting it on a switch here pretty soon the games were well-received and have been re-released many times on compilations such as uh, standalone games, the electronic, the EDM dance music soundtrack of the games scored by Yuzo Koshiro and Motihiro Kawa, yeah, Kawashima have also received praise uh, and stood the test of time as well. <clears throat> the three games within the series released between 91 and 94 of the uh, inception of the, the uh, Sega Genesis. Granted, the Genesis came out in 88. I mean, in 91 was also the same year that Sonic 1 came out too, so it... You know, it definitely stood the test of time, and it holds up compared to Sonic still. The first one introduced four uh, main characters, three young police officers, Axel Stone, Blaze, and Adam Hunter, and Mr. X, an evil mastermind. Mr. X comes back in Streets of Rage 2. Uh, it's the series to feature a Shinobi-style special attack that defeats all non-boss enemies on screen. Streets of Rage was supported by Sega Mega Drive, Master System, and Game Gear consoles. Uh, I don't know if I have the uh, Game Gear port. I don't even know if I put it on uh, my Master System emulator either, but yeah, Sega Genesis is where I played it. Uh, even for those of you out there, if you don't know, on the Mega Drive, it's called uh, Bare Knuckle. Uh, all three of them are, you know, Bare Knuckle 1, 2, and 3. 
the second entry, arguably the best one, had new music influenced by 90s club music from series composer Yuji Koshiro, as well as Motihiro Kawashima. Defined graphics and largest selection of moves. Yeah, there's a lot more to uh, utilize in the second one. Uh, grappling, you can jump over them and throw them to your uh, advantage, offense, defense, and so forth. It was just Eddie uh, Skate Hunter, Max Thunder were introduced, Sammy Skate Hunter, and Max Hatchet in some regions, depending on where you played it, whether it be uh, Europe or uh, the U.S., also including... Uh, Axle, you know, blades and uh, yeah, skate, obviously uh, being on the roller blades. The third entry in the series, it's less well received than its predecessors. I'd say one was great, two is phenomenal, and then three, it's okay. Yeah, it's it's not bad. Uh, they added a lot more complex storylines using cutscenes. Western version featured increased difficulty with other elements, altering or censoring them from the Japanese release. <clears throat> Excuse me. The music again composed by Koshiro and Kawashima, also criticized for being radically different from the music within the first two games, within the third one. Unlike the two preceding games, Streets of Rage 3 was only available actually on the Genesis. There was a hiatus until Streets of Rage 4 came out uh, just recently. Well, not eh, recently, sure, within the last you know, what, five years or so. Uh, Sega reported to have attempted to bring it to Saturn in an early production of a Dreamcast demo tentatively titled Streets of Rage 4, made by Ancient. Uh, neither the Saturn nor the Dreamcast game uh, went to fruition, though. However, uh, Backbone Entertainment later pitched it to a game to Sega, but this project also uh, failed as well to proceed on the original Genesis at the time. Numerous unofficial fan-made projects and remakes have been developed, including Beats of Rage, a Streets of Rage remake. There's a lot of Beats of Rage, uh, like, I guess, ROM hacks. I've seen, like, Ninja Turtles. I've seen Power Rangers. It's essentially the Streets of Rage 1 and 2 game, just with uh, different IP characters. It's actually pretty cool. You can pick up those uh, ROM-hacked uh, cartridges, probably... At 20 bucks on eBay. They're really not that expensive. They are pretty cool, though. There was also a uh, crossover game in 2015 called Project X Zone 2 featuring Axel Stone from uh, Streets of Rage 2, along with Mr. X possessed by robot Axel as a boss character, marking the first new appearance of a Streets of Rage character in over 20 years. First new entry in the series since Genesis Streets of Rage 4, announced in 2018 and released in 2020. So yeah, three years ago, Streets of Rage 4 just came out. There's a lot of uh, Genesis games uh, coming out as far as uh, remakes and so forth. Releasing 2017 was uh, Wonder Boy 3, The Dragon's Trap, which was also on Genesis uh, since the beginning. Spinoff minigame based on the Yakuza Like a Dragon series, Streets of Kamurocho, released on Sega's 60th anniversary celebration. It was developed by Empty Clip Studios, available on Windows and Steam as of 2020 from October to 19. So, yeah, Streets of Rage, I mean, it still holds up. There's only maybe eight stages uh, it's a little slow, at least the first one, because you can't double tap to run. Excuse me, let me get a sip of my energy drink here. But uh, it's still a lot of fun, man. I, I really loved it. He had a good time with it, too. I think he and I both were like, the only issue I'd say was, yeah, it was just a little slow. Other than that, it, it's a great game. Uh, next one we played was Golden Axe 3. We, uh, I think we beat maybe... I don't know, maybe three bosses or so. We got maybe about halfway through. Golden Axe 3 <clears throat> is the third installment within the original side-scrolling beat-em-up game developed by Sega, released for the Sega Mega Drive June 25th, 1993. This is the uh, third installment, as I stated. The first two, the first one, it's great. It's classic. It's short and sweet. You get to the last boss. Uh, he's fucking difficult. He's crazy. Um, Prince of Darkness um, defeating the villain. Oh, my God. It was just way too much. Uh, the second one, just kind of like how Streets of Rage work. I feel like the second one is probably the better one. Three is incredible, though. They in include new characters and uh, <clears throat> a little more uh, it's a little more fluid. You can actually run and a little more, I guess, uh, controlling manipulation as far as your abilities are concerned as uh, offense and defense and all that. 
Uh, the game was later released a number of times in the Sega Genesis Collection for PS2, PSP, Sonic's Ultimate Genesis Collection for 360 and PS3, as well as the Wii Virtual Console in the uh, Sega Genesis compilation. Uh, the gameplay expanded slightly. It's essentially the same hack and slash as the previous games. There are special attacks, teamwork attacks, teamwork magic spells, and junction points where the players can choose which path they take. That was also pretty cool. It was like choose uh, course A or B, and that, that was kind of like an open book, obviously allowing uh, like a new game plus like for a uh, replay. So therefore, you can play it again in a different style, a different way. Uh, <clears throat> Gilius Thunderhead is the only character who appears from previous games, being the uh, main protagonist. He isn't playable. He only appears during cutscenes. Kane Grinder, Sarah Byrne are referred to as Axe Battler and Tyrus Flair, respectively, in the Sega Channel localization of this game. Has uh, new moves, including blocking. That is true. Yeah, blocking was kind of hard to pull off, but sweeping attacks were cool. Projectile attacks were also really cool. Um, obviously, you can ride uh, critters and creatures and so forth. It was like a snail with like muscular legs or something. It was pretty bizarre, uh, this creature that you can ride and it like spits its tongue out. And obviously, that's your uh, weapon, I guess, of choice. Defensive and offensive special attacks. Updated grappling system. Furthermore, there are several abilities unique to certain characters. Um, that's very true. Some features were removed in the second game that were also actually brought back in the third installment, Golden Axe 3. The mischievous gnomes from the original game who carried magic potions, that's true, uh, and they run really fast, and you obviously have to kick them. The green ones bring you food, and the blue ones give you uh, magic, therefore, for your spells, so you can use them towards bosses. At least that's what I do. I save my magic spells. I rank them all the way up to, I think it's like, you can collect like five magic potions, and I use them, uh, usually on the uh, bosses for the most part. Uh, on the snail note, the purple snail uses its tongue to attack. The green snail is more powerful version with a larger tongue. The green dragon bites and throws enemies over its shoulder. Players are able to choose their own route to the golden axe, as I've stated before. If the player reaches the last boss, they are not on their last continue. They may get the good ending. Huh. Man, it was a fu- it was a fun game. It was fucking hard, man. EGM, Electronic Gaming uh, Monthly, commented, Sega of Japan is not going to release this title here in the States, and for good reasons. The graphics are by far some of the most plain-looking on the Mega Drive, plus the new magic effects aren't as impressive as before. I disagree. So if you're considering purchasing this title overseas, seller, don't waste your bucks. I disagree. IGN, 5 out of 10, saying, Legend has it. Sega thought the quality of the product was low, so that it would be worthless or worse, damaging to even publish the game in the States. Whether it's not actually true, the quality assessment at heart is on its target, because Golden Axe 3 is certainly the worst of the franchise trilogy. I disagree, man. I mean, one is fun. Like I said, it's fun up until you get to the last boss and then you die. And then the second one probably hits every note perfectly. And then this one, it's it's okay. They try changing things and, you know, it's it's not bad. What the f- Uh, Yeah, it just it's, – it's not bad. Uh, I think Golden Axe 2 is probably better. But uh, that's what I showed him. He liked it. We both were like, it's a lot faster. Uh, compared to Streets of Rage, uh, the gameplay was there. It was just the difficulty spike was, well, it was pretty difficult. Uh, that was really our only issue. Uh, Earth Defense, I don't really have too much to say on this one. Um, graphically, it looked almost like a Master System game. It, it, it's uh, known as uh, the Earth Defend on the title screen. It's an unlicensed game for the Sega Mega Drive Genesis, released by uh, Realtek. Um, it was developed by AV Artisan, published by Realtek in North America and Taiwan without a license from Sega, as I've stated. Game cartridges and box shapes, as well as quality in the graphics, are identical to AV Artisan's previous titles, Funny World and Balloon Boy, as well as Mallet Legends' Whack a Critter, both published by Realtek. Earth Defense is also rare that it was a simultaneous two-player vertical scrolling shoot 'em up That's why we played it, so therefore we can play two-player shoot 'em games. And uh, 
we got further in this game than the other shoot 'em up that I'm about to talk about here momentarily. This one definitely looked worse, but it was easier to navigate through. There's only five stages. Uh, Brazil, Washington, Siberia, China, and Nigeria, apparently. Uh, I think we got to maybe the second or third stage and just died. I mean, the other game I'm about to talk about is much more bullet hell. I mean, this one was fun in its own right, but you can definitely tell that it's an unlicensed game because the graphics aren't the best, but it was a little easier to, uh, I guess, comprehend where uh, enemies are coming from, where you can shoot and so forth. It, it was faster gameplay, I felt, compared to the other game I'm going to be talking about, too. The player takes on the role of a jet pilot assigned to liberate five world continents from technology advanced army. Players have two different weapons types choosing from during combat, a Vulcan spread shot and a wave beam shot. Rather than processing bomb-like items, the player had a shield item that made the ship temporarily unavailable. Or not unavailable, excuse me, invulnerable, which is true. You press C and you get this like Flight of the Phoenix flame type thing. It's uh, invincibility and uh, you can't get hurt. Uh, it cannot be played through a Sega 32X. The game must be put directly into the Sega Genesis cartridge slot. When the game is inserted into the 32X, the Realtek logo will show up, but the Genesis will keep resetting itself. The game will not run on all uh, Majesco Sega Genesis. Yeah, oh, no, okay. So the uh, the tiny one, the Sega Genesis 3 model, it will not run at all on that game with the actual physical cartridge. Uh, for me, obviously, I have it uh, emulated. But, uh, yeah, it's it's okay. It, you can definitely tell it's uh, like a fan-made kind of... Uh, shoot em up that came out in 1995, but it, I had fun with it. You know, it, it it was okay. I've definitely played way better shooters on the Genesis. Absolutely. I mean, Truxton, Musha, you know, we didn't play those because it was only two player, but I do talk about a shooter that I play one player here momentarily. All right. The uh, two player shooter that he and I played was Battle Squadron, a vertically scrolling shooter for the Amiga originally on the PC. Uh, it is a sequel to Hybris. A version for the Mega Drive was released in 1990. The game was re- uh, later ported to the iOS device in 2012 and Android in 2013 to the Amiga OS 4, Windows, and the Morph OS. Uh, taking place many years in the future, another star system, a century-long war raging between Earth Defense Fleet and Barak's Empire. Two defense commanders, Lori Bergen and Barry Mayers, were returning from research destroying missions regarding latest Barak's technologies on planet Urania. Yeah. It might as well just call it Planet Urine. Sure, why not? <clears throat> Good job, guys. When suddenly a barracks cruiser materialized behind them, brought their ship in, and took the commanders hostage on Planet Terrania. The player's mission is to rescue the commanders and eliminate all barracks threats in process. I mean, I don't even know why sometimes they put stories in shooters, unless it's like, I don't know, if it wasn't just a shooter, like if there was platforming involved, a uh, running gun, or like a driving sequence, or I don't know, but it's strictly, I don't... I don't really feel like a story needs to be developed for a shooter. I just don't feel like it's necessary. I'm like, just tell me, like, you're here to defend Earth and, you know, take these uh, ships and do the best you can. Good luck. All right, start the game. Like, that's all I really need personally. But uh, uh, the graphics are certainly better in this one, uh, being published by EA at the time, uh, Enterprise Software, uh, released Amiga 1989, and then the Mega Drive 1990. It is, uh, you can play it either single player, but we, he and I play multiplayer. It's fun. It's almost like bullet hell. All the bullets kind of like look the same. So that was kind of hard to differentiate, uh, how you were to avoid, you know, getting hit. Obviously he and I either, I'm usually normally really good at shooters and he was actually pulling in his own too. I was very, very impressed with that. Uh, there are pickup items, including Baraxine Jewel caches marked by small green X's. That's true. Worth 1000 points each. If you keep collecting points, obviously you get an extra life and so forth, but, uh, yeah, I mean, uh, my buddy uh, Rhodes, uh, who I was playing these video games with, uh, he was actually uh, pulling his own, his own weight. He really liked uh, holding the original uh, three-button Sega Genesis controller. He just he has bigger hands than I do. He was just like, yeah, this just feels right. 
Uh, my buddy Rhodes, who I like to call a Roadhouse, and that's usually the nickname I give him. But uh, yeah, uh, we had we had fun playing this one too. Uh, I think the uh, shooter that we probably enjoyed maybe the most is probably this one. We didn't get very far, though, because of the difficulty spike. This game was also difficult as well, Battle Squadron. All right, on to the next shooter we were talking about, or he and I played, excuse me. Forgotten Worlds, titled Lost Worlds in Japan, a side-scrolling shooter video game by Capcom, released at a coin-operated arcade game in 88, notably being the first title released by Capcom for their CP system arcade game hardware. I don't think I knew that. It was their first game. That's cool. Plot. Very, very short. This one, I, I can see that because it's like a side-scrolling shooter as well as it being a shoot-em-up. Uh, evil god known as Bios in the 29th century has destroyed most of Earth, turning it into a desolate wasteland known as the Dust World. Two nameless super soldiers created by people to defeat Bios and the eight evil gods who serve them. So therefore, there's eight levels. I get it. Okay. Also released on platforms, uh, the Turbo Graphics. I knew that. And also for the Wii uh, Virtual Console. That's pretty cool. This game released May 13th, 1988 in arcades. I played it on the uh, Genesis. Um, two players can play simultaneously. It was interesting, though, like because you have to use A, B, and C in order to move. Uh, a could do, I think it was like counterclockwise, and then B would be clockwise, if I'm not mistaken. And then um, I think C was maybe to like hold your position or something like that. Like So you didn't use the D-pad in order to scroll around. Well, okay, excuse me. You use the D-pad to move around the screen. But you use A and B and C in order to move your, uh, I guess, if you will, your crosshairs when you're shooting, which is nice, though. There's already turbo on. You don't have to continually tap A, B, and C. But that was definitely it, – it takes some getting used to in order to manipulate how to move around and uh, shoot because you have to use A, B, and C uh, for your X and Y as well as Z axis to uh, move around. It's pretty strange, but you get, you get used to it. But – uh. Rotating switch left, right with arrows, player to adjust their character's aim in a line of 16 directions. While pressing it causes the player character to shoot his gun. This allows for the player to move their character anywhere while keeping their arm and aim in one direction. Pressing the switch rapidly will cause the character to perform a mega crush attack, which will destroy on all screen enemies, but at the expense of a portion of their vitality gauge. See, that's what I hated about these old games, too. Like, if you do your special attack, you lose health. But, I mean, I get it. It's an arcade fucking crunching machine. That's what they're designed to do. If you want to keep playing, you gotta you know hurt yourself and put more money in. So stupid. For, uh, Forgotten Worlds consists of nine stages, each with its own boss. The player will lose if their vitality gauge runs out, but <clears throat> will be given a chance to continue. <clears throat> Excuse me. The game to, uh, took two years to develop with a production budget of five million, equivalent to twelve million in twenty twenty two, and four megabytes of sprite data. That's nothing, but at the time it was probably a big deal. The game started off as a regular side-scrolling shooter, but Yoshiki Okamoto wanted a more imaginative game. During development, Capcom tried to make the game easier to play, having received criticism about how hard it was to dodge enemies, projectiles, and previous games. Uh, yeah, this game's not necessarily as hard to dodge, it's just hard to maneuver where your gun is to be shooting. That's my issue. As this was the first game to use the CPS-1 um, hardware, Capcom tried to fully maximize its software capabilities instead. The game did not generate enough income upon its release due to large numbers of shooter games in the market, and there were increased expenses due to shortage of chips needed for the CPS-1 boards. Gotcha. Uh, released in Europe and U.S. in 1989, versions were produced for the Amiga, Atari ST apparently, Commodore 64, ZX Spectrum, 
uh, Amistrad CPC, TurboGrafx-16, as well as the uh, Sega Genesis. That's where I got it. The PAL region in North America got the Sega Genesis version in 1990. So therefore, the TurboGrafx, as well as the arcade, got it a year before. A Master System also released one in Europe and Brazil. Master System lasted a long time, like up until like it was like 2015 or something in Brazil. It, it was incredible. I'm assuming they're probably still making games for it still, too. Really, really cool. Uh, it, it's... <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, in Japan, Game Machine uh, actually listed Forgotten Worlds on their September 1st, 1988 issue as being the second most successful table arcade unit of the month, outperforming titles like Sky Soldiers and Ninja Spirit. Ninja Spirit was also a game, kind of like Ninja Gaiden, uh, ported to the Turbo Graphics as well as the PC Engine. In 1988, the Gamist Awards in Japan, the arcade game actually received Best Graphics Award, Forgotten Worlds. I, I can believe that because even to me, like watching it and like looking at it and playing it, I was like, oh, wow, these graphics are actually really, really cool. So that's what he and I played. Uh, the difficulty spike, it's not too necessarily much so there. It was just the, the controls were just definitely not the best. But uh, the graphics are pretty cool for what they are. Next game he and I played was Joe and Mac. Now, Joe and Mac, I first experienced this game on Super Nintendo. That's where I saw it. The black cartridge with the pink label. So freaking cool. And then I found out that there was a sequel on Super Nintendo. I have that one. That one's kind of like Adventure Island 2. It's like this open world kind of concept with uh, cavemen platforming, uh, side-scrolling. And then obviously the uh, Sega Genesis is a lot more uh, true to the arcade port. Um, as well as there being a, uh, an original NES port. As well as Game Boy, Amiga, Zebo, and uh, obviously being on Switch now and PC. Joe and Mac, also known as Caveman Ninja, in 1991, a platform game released by uh, Data East in arcades. Uh, ported to the uh, aforementioned systems that I stated. The game stars green-haired Joe and blue-haired Mac, cavemen who battle through numerous prehistoric levels using weapons such as boomerangs, bones, fires, flint, electricity, stone wheels, and clubs. Flint, I notice, is the only one you can use uh, in the Sega Genesis version. In the Super Nintendo, as well as the Sega Genesis game, you get boomerangs, you do get bones, uh, you do get fire, you do get wheels, and obviously you have the club. And this one, uh, being more true to the arcade, you get the uh, flint and electricity. I don't remember the electricity in the uh, Super Nintendo one. I beat the Super Nintendo one. I did not beat the arcade one, which is the uh, Sega Genesis one. Or at least it's pretty closer to the uh, arcade. The levels are a lot shorter, too, on the Sega Genesis one. On the Super Nintendo one, it's they're not like, oh my god, like hour-long levels, but they're definitely longer levels they uh, added to them. Um, I feel like it's a little more pretty, too, I think, on the uh, Super Nintendo. But I kind of like the uh, fast arcade-style gameplay on the Sega Genesis, that version. Two-player mode is available in some versions. Both characters are capable of damaging each other, uh, friendly, i.e. friendly fire. That was another issue, too, with uh, a lot of the older games that he and I we were playing, like uh, Bare Knuckle Streets of Rage, the friendly fire. That was annoying. Golden Axe 3, that was also annoying, the friendly fire. I forgot about that. Otherwise, they were fun games just the way they are, but the idea of friendly fire, man, that's annoying. Then again, you have to remember, they are originally arcade games. Therefore, if you hurt yourself and you die, they want you to keep pumping quarters in so you keep playing. Just so so dumb, like such a cash... Like, that's all they really were. They were just cash grabs. Like They were like, for your entertainment, spend your money. Like, can't we just play a game and beat it and then play something else? You're going to get our money anyway. Just, I don't know. Think about the consumer. Don't think about yourself. Anyway, I, I get it. It's capitalism. The world, you know, lives on it. Anyway... The original arcade version and the Amiga, as well as the Mega Drive Genesis, have a distinction of allowing players to select between different routes at the end of boss battles. That's very true. There was an A and B course. Uh, the Super Nintendo didn't have that. Also, after defeating the final boss, players can choose between three exits, each one leading to a slightly different ending sequence. So therefore, there is new game plus involved with this particular game. 
uh, allowing uh, replayability because you can try different eggs and see what ending you get. That's interesting. A Super NES version uh, released in 1991 by Data East. And then the uh, Mega Drive Genesis one actually came out later on, so in 94. Interesting. So the arcade was... 1991, and then there was the Super Nintendo one, and then the Genesis one came out three years later in 94. But I hear that the one on Genesis is more true to the arcade, even though it came out three years later. Whatever, I'm, it doesn't make sense to me, but okay. In December of 92, a version for the NES was also released. Uh, at that time in 92, the Super Nintendo was already at least a year old, if I'm not mistaken, you know, with uh, Axe, uh, or excuse me, with games like uh, Act Razor, uh, Super Mario World, F Zero, Link to the Past, all that. Uh, and then they made. They were still making NES games, I think, up to like 93, 94, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, excuse me. Energy drink, guys. Uh, developed by Elite Systems and published by Data East. A Game Boy version also came out in 93. Game Boy having arrived in the States in 89, the Game Boy was going pretty hot until I think 98, 99, if I'm not mistaken, before the uh, Game Boy Color came out. Developed uh, at that time for the Game Boy by Motive Time, it was published by Data East. I believe I have that port emulated i'm not sure if not i definitely look forward to uh, getting into that I, I i really have fun with these uh platforming uh caveman games you know prehistoric ninja or not i'm sorry prehistoric caveman excuse me or there's prehistoric man that was on super nintendo wow they all supported it to game boy uh, obviously bonk's adventure uh chuck rock i had a lot of fun with that the flintstones games of course classic just fun stuff finally oh and uh what is it congo's caper on super nintendo that was a really fun one i enjoyed that uh, action platformer i beat that one too Finally, in late 93, another version was developed by Eden Entertainment Software, published by Takara and Genesis for Tech Toy, Brazilian Mega Drive in early 94. Reception. The one reviewed for the arcade gave uh, Caveman Ninja, calling it a cutesy, jumpy game, which uses some good graphics, neat comic touches to overcome the unoriginal gameplay. Or unoriginal, eh, whatever, whatever, whatever. Recommended it as being worth a try. Sure. Uh, the NES has unresponsive controls, so uh, writing that and jumping simultaneously throwing your weapon is an important move. It's often hard to perform on the NES. Great. Lovely. Uh, the Super Nintendo version. Ooh, the snag is that there isn't a lot to hold your interest. I disagree. I loved that game. The appeal starts to flag after a few minutes. I disagree. Collision detection is annoying as well. Uh, it has its moments, sure, but it's not consistently bad. Tending to give baddies the benefit of the doubt in any clash of heads. I'm afraid this coupled with awkward controls soon saw me adopting I couldn't care less attitude towards the game. For Super Nintendo, really? I mean, then again, that was the uh, praise or I guess, uh, you know, ridicule that it was given then. I mean, I I enjoyed it. I loved the Super Nintendo one. I've I beaten it. I thought it was great. There's an overworld you can go through, collect keys, open up different worlds. It's a lot of fun, man. They're, they're tripping. I had a lot of fun with that. Legacy-wise, here we go. Followed by various sequels, Joe later appeared in a 1993 Game Boy puzzle game, Frankie, Joe, and Dirk on the tiles, along with Frankie from Dr. Frank in the game on Super Nintendo, and Dirk the Daring from Dragon's Lair. The Japanese version, SNES game, Congo's Caper, love that game. Presented as a sequel called Tatake Genshijin, excuse my Japanese, to Rookie no Boken, and featured a new protagonist, Congo, that, that is. The title duo uh, later would return in Joe and Mac 2 Lost in the Tropics, adding light role-playing aspects to the series, as I've stated. An arcade sequel titled Joe and Mac Returns eschewed the scrolling action of the original games in favor of gameplay similar to Data East series Tumble Pop. Joe and Mac appear in a German Mario comic as well, titled Super Mario Verloren in der Zeit. Sure. Updated version of the game has also been announced for uh, release exclusively in the Intellivision Amico. Possible reboot in 2009, a remake in November 2022 on PC. Uh, the game developed by Mr. Nuts Studio. Nice, nice name. Well, Mr. Nuts was also a game that was kind of like a side-scrolling version of uh, 
Conker's Bad Fur Day on uh, Super Nintendo. I believe there was also a Game Boy port of that game, if I'm not mistaken. Mr. Nuts is also one of those kind of rare and not like, oh my God, it's overly expensive games for the Super Nintendo, but it's it's definitely up there as far as uh, being costly. All right, these are my two one-player games that I have here that I played on the Sega Genesis. My buddy was like, well, this is great. But uh, Joe Mac, it was fun. The difficulty spike is definitely there. It's, I think he and I got through maybe two or three bosses and <clears throat> the uh, setup of... The uh, levels are relatively similar to the Super Nintendo ones. They're just shorter, and then obviously you get to choose your own course. But I was like, you know, telling him like, hey, hit that egg, you know, so you can get this weapon. Or, hey, watch this or dodge this so you don't get hurt here. And he's like, how do you know? I was like, dude, I've been, you know, playing these for fucking 20, 30 years now, whatever. But anyway, he and I both liked it. The difficulty spike was there, though. We, Oh, man, we died a lot. Anyway, Elemental Master is what I played, a... Uh, Vertical uh, scrolling shoot 'em up developed by Technosoft for the Sega Genesis, released in 1990 in Japan and 93 in North America by Renovation Products. Uh, it's it's a pretty fun game. It's really cool uh, gameplay. The game is auto scrolling upwards. The player can choose to either shoot up or down. There are different weapons, types of magic available based on natural elements. On the, of the seven levels, the game has the player can choose the order of the first four. I tried all four, and I don't think I got to the boss on any of them. I got pretty far, but I mean. You know, the fact is, I think it's like B to shoot forward and like A to shoot behind you and C to use maybe magic, if I'm not mistaken. It's really cool. It's just, it's, uh, it's rather, rather difficult. There's an evil being called, uh, Gyra, uh, sealed underneath the city's castle, Gyra on the kingdom with the intention of letting the evil influence spread. Uh, late in the strongest sorcerer in the kingdom, ready to attack Ariag, apparently stopped in shock when Ariag revealed himself to be Layden's brother, Roki, back into by Jaira's most dedicated followers. Roki banished Layden from the conquered kingdom. Layden vows to stop Jaira's influence from spreading and stop Jaira's ambitions. Sure, very simplistic. Like I said, I, I, I'm okay with like a very small, simplistic plot as far as uh, shooters go. You don't really need too much of a story. But uh, on the cover of it, the guy kind of looks like Jean-Claude Van Damme, I feel like from a side uh, profile perspective. I just love the artwork on some of these old games. So cool. Elemental Master is a lot of fun. It's definitely difficult though. I, I get pretty dang close, I think, to the uh, boss of each of the uh, original four stages and I just get smoked, man. It, it's hard, but it's it's fun. Soundtrack composed by Toshiyaharu. Yeah, Yamanashi, excuse my Japanese, uh, who also worked on Thunder Force 3. Uh, Lightning Force, I believe is what it was called, if I'm not mistaken, and Thunder Force 4 and Dragon's Fury. Uh, Thunder Force 3 was also, yeah, Lightning Force, a uh, <clears throat> horizontal uh, shoot 'em up Then Thunder Force 4, they came back and uh, made it one of the best shoot 'em ups on uh, fucking Sega Genesis and Dragon's Fury. Uh, one song from Elemental Master was remixed into the new version in Dragon's Fury. The style of the soundtrack is synth rock and classical vibes. This, uh, it does have really cool synth music. It is very relatively uh, easily understood fluid gameplay. It's just the difficulty spike with trying to dodge enemies and uh, there are like narrow pathways that you have to get through. It's it's fun, but it's a pretty difficult game. It is also given uh, by Illusionware a grade of A, 92% stated that Elemental Master strikes the perfect balance between graphics, music, and gameplay. An excellent piece of gaming history. Agreed. It's phenomenal. Loved it. Just really, really difficult. And, uh, and then I decided to, I was like, you know what? There's another game uh, with the name Master in it on uh, the Sega Mega Drive Genesis that I was like, I got to check this out. I know I've played it before a little bit, but not enough of it. Now, having played Jewel Master, and uh, my buddy also liked me uh, watching me play that. Kind of reminds me of like Rygar meets like, I don't know, El Viento meets, it's interesting. There's a lot of games that are similar to it, but the idea that you can go into your, uh, press the start button, and then you can um, navigate what rings you want to put on your finger, whether it be for a barrier, like defensive attack, or attack with like a fireball, electricity. I mean, it's 
there's a lot of uh, a lot of different variations. Uh, it's a 1991 video game for the Mega Drive Genesis game console. It takes place in the country of Myth God. The protagonist Jewel Master must travel to the harsh lands, ranging from scorching deserts to rugged mountains, through long forgotten ruins, to collect the twelve elemental rings and save Mythgard from the clutches of the demon king Jardine or Hardin the Mad. I mean, if I pronounce it Hardin, the guy's name is Garden. Sure, Garden the Mad. Why not? Uh, gameplay it is a side-scrolling action adventure using the A and B buttons as your uh, left and right hands and the C button to jump which is actually very very clever because like I said when you press uh, start you can go into your hands and obviously you have all four fingers um, on your uh, left hand and obviously all four fingers on your right hand and therefore you can put the rings where you want them to go and they will do different types of uh, attacks or, or uh, different types of defensive maneuvers it's, it's really a uh, unique a player familiar with the game can also usually figure out which attack and combinations of rings are much more effective than others. One enemy is weak to water, I mean to fire, but the other one is or isn't. Enemies are not susceptible to specific, uh, specific elements. But you can always create a barrier nonetheless, which is really cool. There are uh, one, two, three, four, five different, uh, five different levels and a couple different bosses. Development. It began original development on the Sharp X68000, the Japanese uh, PC, under the title Blade of the Great Elements. That's uh, probably better that they didn't include blade because you don't really use a blade. I mean, you use, you know, magic from your fingers, but whatever. Uh, receptively, Sega Pro Magazine gave Jewel Master an overall score 88 out of 100. Rightly so. Despite the repetitive gameplay, it does manage to continually impress us with graphics and sound making that make you want to play. Megatech gave an overall score 55 out of 100. Now, the game being a fairly standard platform game, setting a few original features, concluding neither the challenge or addiction to keep you entertained for more than a few sessions. Uh, yeah, yeah, I, I played it for maybe, I don't know, probably 15, 20 minutes, maybe a half hour. I got maybe to like a boss and I think I died. That's true. I mean, it has enough to keep you going, but like once you die, I don't really have the desire to be like, eh, I got to go back and I got to play it and beat it. But uh, there you have it. Talked about Fear Eyes Only, A View to Kill, what I've been playing, obviously Sega Genesis games as well as the other games aforementioned. Uh, subjective list that I always enjoy talking about, creating my own. Tales from the Crypt, the first two episodes, and these uh, Sega games to close out with. Uh, as always, thank you guys for the love and support. It's a lot of fun doing this. Please, please, qu questions, comments, concerns. If anybody wants to uh, be on my show or anybody wants to email me, uh, talk to me via Telegram, uh, Tyler Glizzy. Uh, email me, like I said, or uh, maybe perhaps should I start a, a Patreon or should I do um, on the Spotify a Q&A? I just want to hear from you guys. I, I think it's important, you know, to figure out where I'm supposed to be going on with uh, my show here. But other than that, as always, guys, thank you for sticking around. Enjoy the rest of your day.